The following podcast is brought to you by cdkoffers.com. Use offer code DIESHRING for 3% off everything on the website and Broken Silicon for 25% off all Windows codes. All right, on with the show. And welcome to Broken Silicon, a gaming hardware podcast. I am your host, Tom, and I will, as always, let my guest introduce himself. Hi, everyone. My name's Ian Cutris. Uh, I am the longtime senior CPU editor of Anantech. I also run my own YouTube channel called Tech Tech Potato, where we take a lighter, funnier look, a trolley look at the tech industry at large. There's lots of potato transitions on your videos, I've noticed. <laughs> well, you know, it's the whole reason. I mean, it's, I always get asked, why, why is your channel called Tech Tech Potato? And it all comes down to the fact that one day I got an opportunity to hold one of Intel's 10 nanometer ice lake wafers in my hand at an event. <laughs> I and, know that picture. And it yeah. was like, oh, let's just see if I can take a bite. And nobody stopped me. I mean, I didn't actually crack the wafer, but... That kind of started a thing where now companies want to give me products to try and bite in order to, you know, get the memification or such. Well, I mean, I think the the most important question to ask first is one by Bollocks who asked, "Now is it Tech Tech Potato or Potato?" Tech. So I think you're saying Potato. Am I wrong? Tech Tech Potato. It's just wanted to get that clear right out of the <laughs> gate from one of our listeners. Why don't you tell everybody, you know, as much or, you know, sometimes people don't want to say everything, but like as much as you want to, where you're from, what you studied, you know, what, what got you into this? So, yeah, it's, I am what you'd consider a tech journalist, uh, though most tech journalists come through the role of being studying journalism at university and then moving to the tech space. Um, I come at it from the other way. I'm sort of the engineering focused. I always say it's easier to teach an engineer to write than it is to teach a journalist about tech. Um, <laughs> so maybe my background is I have I have degrees in in chemistry, computational chemistry. Uh, I've done a live stream on my channel uh, where I literally go through my PhD thesis, you know, sort of front to back what I did in my thesis defense, um, all about programming gpus and a, you know doing actual application of of science and compute on them um which is kind of tricky or at least you know it, it was 10 years ago when we were on cuda 2.0 i think we're on cuda 11 now they're, they're they're much more in line with um with how to how to accelerate hpc workloads these days but what drove me into Going from say that into tech journalism is at the time I was I was I was one of the breed of of uh, extreme overclockers. I would be using air cooling, liquid cooling, sub zero cooling, you know, solid carbon dioxide, liquid nitrogen, trying to overclock systems in the overclocking leagues. There's an official overclocking league, um, mm -hmm. and uh, you know my claim to fame there is I managed to get second in the world for like a day and a half, and I still maintain that that counts <laughs> so it counts it counts 
And through that, I kind of went to some of these overclocking events at the time. Gigabyte was doing their Go OC overclock event, and they'd be going around to different countries and doing like local overclocking competitions to go to Computex, the same way that sort of G-Skill does with their overclocking competitions these days. And I kind of went there on behalf of the team that I was a part of, the UK team, but just to take pictures and write it up, you know, like a journalist mm-hmm. would do. And it just so happened that there I met the... I met the motherboard editor for an Antec, senior motherboard editor for an Antec. And, you know, we'd spoken over the forums. I'd never met him in person. And he's a really nice guy. And he said, why don't you come write for an Antec? You know, just part-time or whatever. And I did. And then six months later, he quit. And uh, and Anne said, well, do you want to be the senior motherboard editor? And so I ended up doing that for five years. It turns out um, so many people are doing a PhD these days that... Uh, there's too many. And I was the only person interested in what I was doing in that field at the time. So I thought, well, hang on, I've got this journalist job as a freelancer doing, you know, the odd one or two reviews a month. Let's try and do, let's try and make a full salary out of it. See if I can do, you know, four or five reviews a month, proper deep dive into motherboards, maybe put some resources behind testing and automation and actually getting the information out that people want to read. I mean, motherboards these days, they're just as complex as they were, you know, five, 10 years ago, a few more competitors back then that are now (laughs) defunct. Um, But I really enjoy that. It's, it's, it's interesting how intricate you can get with a motherboard review. I mean, nowadays people say, well, they're almost all the same. You just buy the one that's, you know, relative to your uh, budget and accept the fact, you know, it's got this amount of Wi-Fi and this amount of Ethernet and it's enough to put your GPU in and it's enough to put your CPU in and VRMs work and they don't overheat. I like to think there's a lot of nuance that goes into you know motherboard design and part of that is because I've looked at so many over the years. But then Anand left and I transitioned into CPU editor because at the time I was getting access, more access to CPUs than he was mm-hmm. through my contacts in the motherboard space. So I think uh, one year MSI wanted me to look at their eco power eco boards. So they sent a bunch of the 35 watt chips with the boards. So I ended up doing a review of the boards and a review of the chips. And you know through there and sitting with Anand, uh, who now works at Apple, um, goodness knows what he's doing, but it's probably something very heavily to do with the M1. Uh, mm-hmm. He. I, I would go to events like Computex, like CES, and I would sit with him in meetings, you know, to listen, to learn. And then eventually I was there with him on the briefings for the CPU architecture, microarchitecture disclosures. And so that's kind of what I do in my day job now is I do those CPU reviews. I help Andre um, with server reviews. We kind of do that together. And I help manage some of the freelancers at Anantech and then the fun stuff all goes on Tech Tech Potato. And I find it really fun. It's a shame that we're in the current situation where we can't travel. Normal year, yeah. normal year I'll travel 200,000 miles to events and stuff. And I love it because I get to talk to all sorts of people from all walks of life, all different you know, technology backgrounds. And they'll always ask me questions about what I think of this, what I think of that. Um, if they work on Wall Street, I'll charge them for my time. <laughs> but I remember seeing you at Hot Chips 2019. I don't, I didn't talk to you, but I remember you were very uh, avid in getting into the line after every keynote. And I remember, I, I, 
and this is a question that was going to be later, but I'll bring it up now. I don't remember what it was, but I remember you grilling some Intel presentation about security and basically asking, it just seems like you added an extra step where these same exploits are going to work on the CPU again. Uh, it's. I don't know if you remember, though. It was a while ago now. It, when we were allowed to go outside, you know. It's funny because I was actually looking through all those that that year's Hot Chips presentations, and uh, the very final presentation of the, of the second day, I got up to ask a question, and the the person presenting goes, "Oh no," because I'd been up like eight times for the last two days. Yeah. Oh no, not this I guy again. Um, I can't remember asking a distinctly security question. I think I think maybe it was the um, the Jintide processor where the Chinese people were trying to do some sort of um, interception of data with a Skylake yeah, Xeon die. I think, yes, that sounds familiar. So they, they put on their own sort of 28 nanometer chips onto a new package with Skylake Xeon and were doing some control flow analysis or what have you. Um, and uh, I think it, that was a show I asked, I kept up, I badgered Lisa about, Lisa Sue about Threadripper because we were really yeah. wanted, you know, a, a Zen 2 based Threadripper at the time and and I asked, you know, what's the plan for the workstation? And, you know, she didn't answer the question because it's not a, it wasn't a product presentation. But now we have Threadripper Pro. Well, you know, she did, though. I remember putting out a video that day or some Twitter thing about that where I was like, no, she, she confirmed it's coming yeah, yeah, out yeah, this yeah, fall. Yeah. She did. And I would suspect she saved that vague but not really vague <laughs> answer for someone to ask it. And you know what? She's a pretty smart person who managed to become CEO. I would suspect she saved that for someone like you because she knew it would go viral. It's I'm just being honest. I'm, I'm guessing that's what happened because I've, I know I mean, my mom's someone like that, actually. Uh, and no, there's more going on in the back of her head. Than, <laughs> she probably planned all of that, if I had to guess. It's uh, I know I know the people who I interview. They will have that, they, they, you know, they will have in the back of their mind, you know, don't mention X unless it's specifically brought up. Right. That sort of thing. Mm -hmm. But I've also gone into interviews where I've had a PR person in my ear saying, oh, so and so will talk about next gen product if you ask. <laughs> you know, literally as I'm walking into the door. To <laughs> in other words, them, yeah. it's like if you ask the question, they will give you an answer. <laughs> Whereas yeah, they're like, yeah, can we get a authentic moment? And it's like, well, you just told me. So it's not authentic, but sure, I'll ask. <laughs> well, it's, it's the, the art of interviewing is um, being able to make the person who you're interviewing think in a slightly different way to how they've been PR trained, right? They know a very distinct PR answer. My very, my, my, especially lately. Yeah. My typical question is usually given that you would normally answer this to this question. Can you answer this question in a slightly different way? That, I mean, that's the sort of basis of how I ask my questions. So it tries to get them roundabout thinking. And sometimes you get really interesting insights into how the companies work that way. Mm -hmm. it's, uh, it's it's been my goal for the last few years and perhaps more so recently since my YouTube channel started that I want to demystify these black box companies that we always talk about. I mean, to for, for you and me, we know what goes on beneath the surface to a certain degree. And I want to obviously know as, more, as much as much as I can. Though obviously they're very reluctant because being a member of the press, they don't want to tell me everything. Um, whereas, you know... Well, you know... One specific example I have that I remember, I forget which briefing it was for. It was some RDNA 2 briefing that I was in. 
And they were taking questions at the end. And I was like, how can I ask this about the next gen consoles where they might answer it? And I tried to find a sneaky way of asking what makes them determine what they call RDNA 2 in each console, basically, without directly asking it. And the guy engineer, and it was funny because the the woman who was asking the question to the engineer for all of mm-hmm. us. Like we had to submit them ahead of time. She started asking the question and the engineer saw it and went, no, 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 no. And then she finished the question and then he had to go, um. We're not going to answer that. No, no, no comment. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> Which is like, so there it is. There's very real differences between these consoles architectures. I mean, well, well, one of the issues that we have with briefings now that we're all virtual is that you do have that translation layer. There is somebody translating your question to the person you want to ask. And uh, that gets kind of frustrating because they either won't understand the question or they'll mm-hmm. take the edge off of it, either knowingly or unknowingly. Oh, yeah. They do that all yeah. the time. I'm like, well, that's it's not really what I asked. You know, Robo Jim writes in and he says, Hi, Ian. I've been an avid reader on Anand Tech for over a decade now, and your writing, along with Anand and Brian Klugs, always got me hyped about computer tech in general. How do you think tech journalism itself plays a role in shaping the future of the industry in terms of people like me who study computer engineering as well. Tech journalism is 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 a weird thing in the sense that out of everybody who uses a computer, the amount of people who actually read tech journalism is low single digit percentage. Right? Out of the billions of people out there, oh, yeah. how many people actually read reviews and news and well, actually follow it? Deep dives, it's like a percent of a percent, yeah. you know. I mean, it's at an Antech, our audience has always sort of been that the professional, the engineer, uh, or the you know, the hobbyist who wants to learn. Um, and in some ways, you know, that encompasses enthusiasts and consumers and what have you. Um, in terms of shaping the industry. Right, it's um, it, it's all about narrative. The goal of the companies that we work with, um, their goal is to tell us their narrative, and hope that we mm-hmm. regurgitate the narrative. Right, <laughs> yeah. it's 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 the difference between being an analyst and being a reporter. If you're a reporter, you just report what's said. You don't add any extra fluff. You don't analyze. It's and you know some parts of my job are simply reporting it's either i don't have time to analyze or it's not worth the brain power and the time and the effort to do the extra analysis but for a lot of it doing the extra analysis helps the people you know that are interested learning understand it at a deeper level um and there's also the, you know the financial market aspect of it you have to be able to write for that market as well um, in terms of shaping the future of the industry, it does it it shows when a company has a narrative and nobody in the press either a understands it or b regurgitates it. If everybody else comes to a different conclusion, say Rocket Lake at Core i nine, Intel mm-hmm. had a narrative. The reviews had a very different narrative. What what was their narrative actually? Because I never paid attention to it. Like I leaked Cypress Cove a year ago, and I have this thing where if I leak something and I'm like really sure, I just I'm gonna be honest. I don't pay as much mm. attention around the launch because it's like you know, like what I don't re- and I remember seeing Rocket like and being like, yeah, this is not one I'm gonna recommend people necessarily buy here. It's an interesting story, but like what what was Intel's narrative? Because I don't know. Well, I mean, it it was the. The the obvious things are you know platform jump to PCIe four, um, 
maintain that sort of support for two and a half gig Ethernet and you know with additional controllers and Thunderbolt four with additional controllers. Um, new art, new microarchitecture. Despite what you think of Cypress Cove as a microarchitecture, is new, new as in it's not Scott yeah. Lake. So, yes. so, so in, in, that was the most interesting thing for sure. That, in, in a sense, where the microarchitecture hasn't really changed for five generations, just having it change in itself is a plus. The fact the whole backporting story, I think, was kind of muddled by their PR, as in they couldn't really mm-hmm. explain why. I mean, at, at one point um, during their briefings, you know, they were saying. Um, Rocket Lake now enables seamless gameplay. And my question was, well, hang on. Did, seamless. Didn't Comet Lake enable seamless gameplay? What's the di- why why, why <laughs> is it now enabling and, and they're like, oh no, 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 no. We meant that, you know, last generation did as well, but this one does. That's what we're saying. And it's like, well, that's not exactly what you said. <laughs> this one did, this one does. Yeah. So, I mean, it's uh, I, I've done a video about how Rocket Lake was um, a good product from Intel from a product design perspective that they learned a lot from the a- actual act of doing it whether the product is good or not was neither here nor yeah. there in that analysis you know it's um intel has m- built products in the past that it's never launched and it's built products that it never made any money off but the whole part of that engineering journey is that you learn things that you know that you shouldn't do next time <laughs> It's like if you boil pasta for the first time, you don't know how to boil pasta. You're going to do something wrong. Well, and, and you said something interesting too on your channel. Some people pointed me to this. Um, when I talked to one of my Intel contacts after the release, he said actually they regard it as a pleasant success because mm. they thought it could turn out far worse oh, yeah. trying to put a similar architecture on two nodes. like that. And a lot of people have heard me say that and go that can't be true it's like no they thought it could turn out worse than it actually mm. did i think yeah and i think i think i would agree that their marketing well I, I i'm curious what you actually think they should have done because like their i5 line for rocket lake it, it's fine you're basically getting a less efficient 5600x that's i mean admittedly a little weaker too um and i would argue on a slightly worse platform uh like what should they have done with the upper end there? Because I really think pushing the i9 that far just made them look bad. And I almost wonder if they should have tried to put PCIe 4.0 on some, un, you know, another iteration of Sky. Like, I don't know if that how easy that would have been, but I find it a little bizarre they didn't go down that route at the same time. Or and again, hindsight's twenty twenty, but I wonder if they should have done that. Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of two questions, really. That's one, what would you yeah. have followed Comet Lake with? And two, if you had Rocket Lake Silicon, what would you do with it? Right. Yeah. So, so, so answer both. Yeah. Then. So, so I mean, <laughs> for, for how many generations have have we or consumers been asking Intel to get off of Skylake? It's so mm-hmm. since Skylake. Yeah. So, <laughs> Technically, I'd argue. <laughs> so, 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 so you got to think. Well, okay, they've done it, but now you're chastising them because it's not it's not a generational jump. From Comet, so maybe they should have done another generation of Skylake. I would argue that they were already pushing the frequency limits of their manufacturing. Mm-hmm. You know, five point three gigahertz, or or was it five point one on the ten core? I can't remember now. Um, but then you know, we'd still be in a holding pattern. I mean, I have my own views about what Old Lake's going to bring. Um, the point is, Intel has to produce products because they support an ecosystem of partners. 
10 years ago, we have you know, MSI, ASUS, ASRock, Gigabyte. They are motherboard manufacturers. And so they have to generate new motherboards every year to generate revenue. Mm-hmm. If AMD or Intel don't release a yeah. product or don't change a socket, they don't generate any revenue for that year and there's potential for the company to go under. So that they had that's something Intel's focused on a lot in the past too compared to AMD. I mean it's it, it's a symbiotic relationship. That's what it is. You have you have to realize that if 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 Intel or AMD doesn't update, then these companies might disappear. That's changed now. The fact that because these companies they build laptops, they build graphics cards, they have other mm, sources yeah. of revenue. I mean MSI's revenue used to be 99% motherboards. Uh, I think I was speaking to one of their executives a few years ago, probably about 2016, and they said, "Oh, you know, now it's you know 90% laptops mm-hmm. because MSI they still do. They still make you know anywhere from $1,500 to $6,000 laptops, so, and and that just became a big source for gaming for them. So you could argue that Intel didn't really need to do that this time around to help the symbiotic ecosystem." Um, but they would have had a big gap in their in their product space, and you have to think, well, they've released something for the shareholders as well, because if the shareholders see a gap in the roadmap when they say, "Oh, you were going to release something," <laughs> don't, 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 don't forget when yeah. when we saw the first announcements of Rocket Lake. I mean, if it, 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 the first official announcement, if you remove all the leaks and just mm-hmm. focus the official announcement, that was what August or November, sort of Zen three timeframe between between there. At that time, at, yeah, it was late last year when they first mentioned it. But at, at that time, they would pro- probably have been getting the first batches of final silicon back, and deciding where the binning should be, based mm-hmm. on that. So they've announced it; they've got to launch it. Otherwise, that looks bad on them. And with the whole Bob Swan issue, and it would have been, looked more bad, I guess. Oh yeah. So yeah, I guess, and and I guess there's really. Because like when I ask the question, what should they have done? I think people, for a lot of people, miss this too. That at least from what I've you know been told, that Intel really <laughs> there's a, multiple stages of the 10 nanometer fiasco. Intel believed their own stuff that it was going to come out on time. Then it pretty much became clear it wasn't, and they kept saying it would. And then they put way more emphasis into fixing it. But they still weren't sure it would be ready by now, really, I don't think, deep down. And that's where they did this backport. So mm-hmm. they made Cypress Cove because they, even though they believe it in their press briefings, they're still not 100% sure it's ready until it's ready. Now, now we know it is ready. Alder Lake's coming out. Ice Lake server's out. 10 nanometer is real. But, I mean, yeah, the reason they made it is because they weren't 100% sure that... 10 nanometer would be ready even now. Yeah, I mean, we have no idea how many of these sorts of projects, Intel or AMD or anyone else, start mm-hmm. and then just get dropped because, oh, no, stuff is... You always build a backup plan. A good business always has that backup plan. And this is... this You could consider it as one backup plan that had to come to market. But you say about all the 10 nanometer delays... Um, what I don't think a lot of people think about is how many people are in that chain from manufacturing yeah. engineer to PR person telling the press. Oh, it's, for sure. You know, it's, yeah. Was somebody lying in that chain and they were smoothing it over? Or did 
did you know communications know what was happening and they had to produce a message that was yeah or was it a top-down decision to try to cover it up Pro- i don't how, think how much did the top know? I, I mean i think it, yeah it's well and if they didn't that's also bad well i mean, I mean <laughs> like, that, sh- they, they, that shows pretty bad things i mean they, they, this is one of the reasons why they hired outside people like murthy renderton charla mm-hmm. like jim keller like raj Gaduri. That's why they hired outside people to come in and say, hey, look, what are we doing wrong? What's going wrong here? And then, you know, Murthy left. Um, Jim uh, left for family reasons. But the whole point is that they've now pivoted the manufacturing of the company with the help of all these, what I call Intel lifers, you know, the ones that have been there for 20 years. They've pivoted in uh, the manufacturing, arguably, into a more agile process. So now they're saying... Or a four to seven month cadence, four to five month cadence with server products, with new process nodes. Um, now the question is, do you believe that? Do you? Be- Intel will never tell us who they've changed internally, mm-hmm. who they've, what they've pivoted internally. They might say, oh, we've re rebranded a group inside the company, or they've realigned personnel to fit better with the ecosystem. A marketing message on top mm-hmm. of that. But exactly what happens deep down, I don't think we'll ever know. Oh, no, not entirely. <laughs> Although I do want to bring something up here. Mm. You mentioned you have your thoughts about Intel Alder Lake. Mm. Well, I mean, that was one of the notes on here. Let's get to that now. I mean, what do you expect from Intel Alder Lake? Uh, I've been pretty clear that I don't, I don't think the desktop is coming this year. Um, mm. in, in, Intel, Intel's, I mean... So, so, so I'll be honest here. I don't, I don't follow the leaks. I just follow what's been put out officially. That's fine. So, yeah. Intel's wording, whenever they do a, whenever they do a press announcement, whether it's um, uh, Greg Bryant on the um, earlier this year at the Intel event, or or even uh, last year, I think they've been very clear to not specify which platform is coming this year with Alder Lake. Um, and the system that they showed on the presentation looked very much like what 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 Intel calls their CRB systems. It's a, like a consumer reference board system. Now, at Nantech, we've actually managed to get one or two of these in the past mm. for mobile chips. The cooler on that system was quite small, could be indicative of a mobile chip. Uh, I, I'm not sure whether it had one memory channel or two. Which it's 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 a dev board. It's it's a reference board. Mm-hmm. It didn't look like a. I mean, it could just be silicon powered down to ten watts, just so it'd boot up Windows, what have you. Um, but then I also look at the DDR5 space, right? If Old Lake's going to have DDR5, which I, and DDR4. Well, so is uh, uh, you know Skylake technically had DDR3 and DDR4 as well. I've got a motherboard over there with both sockets, uh, both uh, slot types. I don't think Intel wants to do a transition to DDR5 unless there's enough DDR5 in the market to satisfy demand for processors, for consumer processors. So what I'm told is that the board makers are being told to not put both on a motherboard like we've seen before with like some of those AM, is it like AM2 Plus or AM3? They, 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 they said the same uh, thing with Skylake, then. but they, they have to for commercial customers. I mean, that's what I have. I, I have a commercial board, commercial Z1. Right, but board. so what I'm told is when you make a motherboard, choose, are you going to have Alder Lake boot up with the DDR4 controller mm-hmm. or are you going to have a boot up with the DDR5 controller? And every motherboard manufacturer I've talked to says 
we're basically all choosing to go with DDR4 because DDR5 just isn't ready. Like it'd be suicide to launch anything but the highest end products on DDR5. So at the very least, what I'll say is that that's what I've heard and that Alder Lake itself is somewhat on schedule for quarter four, but that the board makers aren't ready, that they are behind if it's going to launch. I don't see a positive marketing message if Intel and its partners come out and say, we're going to have DDR4 boards now, but you're going to have to wait a quarter for DDR5 boards because essentially there's no upgrade path for that that motherboard. I mean, yeah, you mm. can put a, put a post old Lake CPU in it, but you're still running a DDR4. Yeah, I think Raptor Lake will probably have both too. Although again, I think that both. one's really yeah, but it's focusing on DDR5 more, so whatever that means. Yeah, it's in 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 my mind there has to be an alignment with how much DDR5 is out in the market, and. Based on the reports I've seen, they're expecting DDR5 to be 10% of the market next year. Oh, yeah, probably. So, well, but wouldn't you agree, though, Intel has to have something? Like AMD could have a Zen 3 Plus and certainly will have Zen 4 next year. If Intel doesn't have Alder Lake out by then, I mean, my, they're already just several, several gens behind in performance. Well, I mean, if you think about post Alder Lake, uh, Raptor Lake and whatever the other one was, I forget. Meteor Lake and then Lunar and blah blah blah. Those will be those will be using different cores on you know different slightly different process manufacturing. They will already be in development, and whenever they come to market, it doesn't matter when Older Lake comes to market, right? If they're going to come to market in say, uh, so let's just say twenty four months, right, for Meteor Lake, regardless, mm-hmm. it doesn't matter whether Older Lake comes out in nine months or fifteen months. If it's ready in 24 months, it will launch in 24 months. So do I think well, yeah. so do I think Intel has to launch Alder Lake this year? No. Um if 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 they align with DDR5 to make sure that it's a fully DDR5, I mean from a consumer perspective platform, from an OEM, you can make it DDR4 or whatever. Um not too fussed about that. Um but on the consumer side, DDR5, it has to align with that if they want to get the messaging right. And I I, I honestly believe that Intel do want to get the messaging right. No, I mean, as for the chip itself, if we're all agreed that it's going to be, say, an 8 plus 8 configuration, um, we still have Intel at 8 cores, 8, eight effective high-performance cores when AMD's at 16. Regardless of what frequency they get out of it, I mean, it's Old Lake is super thin, so I assume they're going to be going 5 gigahertz, maybe a bit north of that. Yeah, on the I think so. Turbo. Um, obviously, power's a big question mark, um, but we'll leave that until... That comes, but we're still dealing with an effective eight core here. I mean, I'm not I'm not necessarily a fan of the hybrid technology of having high powered cores and high efficiency cores on desktop. Well, it's not out yet on desktop, so we don't know if it'll work. Is the, what I would say. Well, if they can make it work, I think it could be a good gaming chip, don't you? I mean, eight. You know, Alder Lake should bring a twenty percent IPC increase over what we have now. I mean, that would be a really good gaming chip, you know, that IPC at five gigahertz, eight cores, and then you have eight little cores for background tasks. No. Or, you know, other stuff as no, well. it's... Saying you have eight little cores for background tasks means that you have to have the right scheduler involved in the OS. Um, yes, it does. And given the issues that Qualcomm have had with Windows on Snapdragon, and on the basis that Windows was Windows 10 was built from the ground up with a homogenous core design layout. We've 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 seen the hacks that have done for you know non-uniform memory architecture chips trying to get the threads on the right cores at the right time. We've seen the threads for 
um, preferred cores or Turbo Boost Max 3. You know, it requires initial drivers at a base level. I think that it's going to be tough because the, the algorithms to predict where you want the workloads to be. I mean, if, if I have an email client that completely starts, that, that starts to grab, say, 100 emails from my, from my server, right? That's going to be high demand for 20 seconds on my CPU. And a good, uh, I think it, it'd be difficult for a scheduler to determine whether it, that wants a low core or a high core, unless you're manually pinning the, core, the processes to those cores, unless you've got a predefined priority setup, which is what we used to have with Turbo Max 3 when it first came to Skylake X. We had the little app. I mean, I still have it on this system because <laughs> I, mm. I asked Intel for the special driver for, um, for the next gen. So You're very skeptical is definitely a word that comes up that it'll work at I all mean, or come on time. It's, I'm viewing Old Lake as an eight-core chip just by virtue of the big cores. They may even advertise it as that still. I've heard that they're considering advertising it as a eight cores, 24 threads of hybrid threading. <laughs> no, it's... I will say that... Because they're worried if they say 16 cores, people will just ding them constantly because yeah. they're little cores. Yeah. I mean, it's with um, with Lakefield, I think four of the Tremont cores, the, all four of them added up to roughly one Sunny Cove in performance uh, it depends yeah, a yeah. little better so well that's another key part of alder lake too is that it's using a new uh an, should i say a next gen over that you know atom architecture mm -hmm. that supposedly isn't bad is you know that they say is and if i i did some analysis in my opinion was god i'm trying to remember it was like it was basically like well as you know like the die size of sunny cove is one sunny cove cores is about equal to how much space is taken up by those four mm -hmm. atom cores and so they decided we'll have four little one big instead of just two big i think the analysis i came to is that if you can utilize them well the next gen atom cores are like 20 percent more efficient with die space because you know if you average out everything basically if they're well utilized if they're not it's obviously worse than just having a bunch of big cores uh, i mean uh, the other issue there is that um so the big cores they have their own private l1 private l2 and a shared l3 across them and then the atom cores have they have private l1s then they have shared l2s and then the l3 is just between the atom cores i think that the l3 isn't actually shared with the with the big cores so you have you have, you have additional power requirements for snooping and everything like that, um, which means you have to have additional di uh, you had die area for snoop buffers. And sometimes the snoop buffers are bigger than the L3 caches. So, I mean, don't get me wrong. IPC up uplift's great. I mean, they're always appreciated. Um, but execution on having so many fundamental changes to how Intel approaches consumer processors I think that's going to be a, be a tough one. I mean, to draw an analogy, Intel's own 10 nanometer, when they tried to do it first time, they tried to have too many changes at once. That's why they had to keep rolling back changes to get it to work. Whereas TSMC has done it one change by one change by one change by one change. I mean, may, maybe it'll be... Lakefield was supposed to be a test case for this, both that and 3D packaging. Yeah. So, I, and it has improved. I mean, when Lakefield first came out, the performance was 
I mean, s- stupid, like for what it was. And by now I hear it schedules fine. That's what I hear, though. They, it schedules better than launch day at the very least. Uh, they never sent us one to test. And uh, relationships with Samsung and Lenovo ain't so good these days. So we never got one for review. Oh. So, I mean, uh, it's... Tremont looked really exciting because it has those dual three wide decoders in the front end. It's the Atom core yeah. inside yeah. of Lakefield. So, yeah. It'd be interesting to see how they how they keep that, how they evolve that going forward, whether they also add a micro op cache to it, um, whether that actually adds any benefit from going to dual decoders. I mean, something like dual decoder is actual true, you know, ISA innovation changes. But I always have an inkling, I wonder what fun things Intel has done with its future architectures. I mean, I remember speaking to engineers, you know, sort of KB Lake timeframe, saying you know, what sort of IPC uplifts are we going to get over the next while? And they said, well, uh, you know, w- 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 what do you expect per generation? And, they, and I said, you know, 10% industry average, slightly above industry average at the time. And they went, oh, yeah, we got that. But then, obviously, they had to delay to 10 nanometer. <laughs> so all these architectures that we're talking about, in my mind, were already put down on paper two years ago. They were. You you can find roadmap, and just to speak to what's out now, you know, Ice Lake, Tiger Lake, mm-hmm. all that. Ice Lake was on roadmap since, I mean, what, like 2015, 20, like they, they weren't worried about Zen, some people at Intel, because they thought they'd be at a 10 nanometer on time, or some of them did. And if they would have, and there were plans for an eight core Ice Lake, that of course never happened. But think about it. I think people need to think about that still. Like if Intel had a decent eight core ice lake in 2017 around when Zen plus was out. No one would care about Zen plus, but they just didn't. Yeah. You know, all of these things were planned and didn't, a lot of things didn't come out that were planned actually. Well, I mean, it's, I, I still have my Canon Lake that's over here. Good old core i3 8121U. That was one of the articles that made me notice you. Cause I was like, just, yeah, it would have been about right when I was starting my channel. And I was like, why has no one tried to move heaven and earth to get a hold of canon like i want to know how it performs and you were like the only decent review that's it it's, the only analysis we we had to call in two or three favors with another company completely unrelated to intel to say can mm-hmm. you buy one on Tabal for us and ship it to us you know it's a 15 inch low-end education lenovo ideapad 330 TN screen, it had like a 128 gig SSD, and you know, which would normally retail for about 300 bucks for a dual core i3. Mm-hmm. I think we paid about 700 in total to get it to ship it, and you know, as a thank you as well. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll be honest, I actually sat on that review for a little while because I wanted to make sure I got the 10 nanometer story right. Because, because it was Intel's first nanometer chip, I wanted the article to actually detail Intel 10 nanometer from you know, 2011, when, they were, mm-hmm. when it first came on the roadmaps as 11 nanometer. Yeah, I've referred to that a lot. Yeah, so, yeah, I've referred to this review and that story you wrote there a lot. Uh, so I, I, I had to dig deep for some of those slides. It's, it was really fun. But um, yeah, and then I think my review came out just as Intel was, was releasing the Crimson Canyon nooks with them. So I mean, like Austin Evans has a review of his Nook, and um, you know, I'm st- I'm still in the market to buy one if I can find one cheap enough. They're still going for full retail price. Would you believe it? Four hundred and fifty dollars. Yeah, for a Canon Lake Nook. I can believe any price for anything now. <laughs> 
I mean, I mean, the the, the GPU in it that didn't work. It does have an RX five forty in it, so <laughs> maybe it can mine. Everything can mine. Well, wait, mm. though, I want to go back though. So just to put a pin in the Alder Lake discussion, mm. I mean, it sounds like. And a lot of people are, so it's not like, you know, this surprises me, but it sounds like you are very skeptical both about it succeeding, it coming to market on time, um, right? And I think you're nodding it. And all I would say is, yeah, I mean, all I know is that the people I talk to are really enthusiastic about it. And the thing they've been saying for over a year is we know this one has to work and a lot's riding on it. So at least I, from my per, from the people I've talked to, they they see this as... And I've always, and I put in a lot of recent videos, like for me, Alder Lake is going to be the thing I'm watching to see if Intel is back, basically. Because if it is a a roaring success, or at least good, let's say not a step back, it works more efficient, better gaming performance, a decent platform that comes out this year, even if it's at the end of this year, that I think, well, there it is. They just did something new besides either adding more IPC or bolting more cores onto Skylake. I mean, don't, don't get me wrong. If it comes out and it's a great success, then yeah, that's that's amazing, and I definitely would love that to happen. But um, keeping it low key so so as to not overhype everything, I think when it comes in my hands, I'm going to have to consider whether I'm reviewing it as an eight core chip, <laughs> as an eight plus zero essentially, or as an eight plus eight, right? Because I'm pretty sure. Or eight plus twenty four, <laughs> eight. Eight core, 24 thread Uh, is what they're thinking. Well, it's, yeah. I've clashed with Intel on how it names things and how it represents its specifications many times. But yeah, I I think my conclusion of it as an 8 plus 0 versus an 8 plus 8 might be slightly different. So, But I need, I'll obviously need to wait until I have it in my hands and I've done the analysis on it, so. Well, and the only other thing I'd say about it is, is sometimes I think it's dismissive to say, because like if it doesn't succeed, I I would argue that's really bad. Like they have nothing then for, and they've had nothing for a while. Of course, if, you know, everything on store sells, shells, uh, sells immediately. I don't know if it matters, but right now, but, but it, 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 I mean, it might, it, if I was an investor, I would be like, you guys have nothing and you're never going to have nothing if you can't make this work. That's what I would be saying. It's like, oh, well, wait another year. <laughs> well, how would we know that one's going to work? You know, well, I mean, they've already said they want to return to you know competitiveness in the 23, 24, 25 time frame. So even then, I mean, say Old Lake desktop doesn't work. Well, maybe Old Lake mobile does. Oh, that one would probably I would be very surprised if that wasn't at least. Yeah. Decent. So, I mean, it's different markets for these sorts of things and uh i mean you've seen like i have how much of intel where where intel's revenue is coming from from any given quarter does seem to float about based on what they have available uh what their uh, customers are saying it's it's i i remember bob swan saying that you know uh enterprise and government was down in the data center because customers had already bought their chips and were still putting them into systems what they call digestion. So they had supply. They didn't need to buy any more. That's why revenue was down one quarter. And yeah, it's, it's, it's going to be interesting how it Well, I don't know how time. long that can last though, right? That That's my only, I mean, certainly for a while longer, but I actually want to pivot then. Mm-hmm. This is a question I like to ask any guest who's covered, covered tech for more than five or six years. I mean, what did you expect uh, in late 2016, I mean, AMD had confirmed Zen. They were making it clear this was a big departure that we're coming back. What did you expect 
out of Zen one, did it overperform and any, any memories you have regarding that? I kind of didn't listen to it for a long time. I mean, even when it was talked about in terms of project Skybridge, where they had, you know, the mm-hmm. Zen and arm co-socket um, compatibility, I didn't really think about it then. It, I think it wasn't until I attended the microarchitecture briefing with AMD, with uh, Lisa, with Mark, uh, with Mike Clark. Mike Clark was a that, that that was a very fun presentation. Him going through the microarchitecture for the first time, because I I remember looking at it and I'm thinking this looks like an Intel core. Yeah, <laughs> you, know, you didn't expect because because of what had happened with Bulldozer for so long. And the bulldozer, and they didn't have hyper threading with Phenom either. Yeah. So this is they were finally going with you know multiple threads per core. It, it, it wasn't even that; it was just the layout of the. So 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 that there's me and uh, the the core at the time. I think it was either Skylake or the KB Lake, right? And so I, I literally yeah. had that on my mind um, as sort of like the microarchitecture to think about. So I was looking at the core diagram, just comparing them, going, okay, micro cache the same. Uh, schedulers look the same. Uh, it's going to be interesting what they do with the branch predictor. And then, you know, AMD at the time, they had more debt than they had assets. I think that was a time when they yeah. had to uh, essentially sell and lease back their headquarters in uh, in Austin. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not sure what I expected really from the performance. It's because AMD had been behind Intel for so long. You just didn't want it to be the same, say, 50% behind in single-threaded. It just had to be near enough. And then mm-hmm. when, 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 when the messaging came out that they were going to... I mean, obviously, I saw the messaging before it came out to the public that they were going to compare this to high-end desktop. I was thinking, hmm. And they're going to be price competitive because at that time also, Intel were going, you know, thousand dollars for their eight cores two thousand dollars for their eight cores i mean that's their 10 cores i mean that's the chip i have now is the 6950x the uh (laughs) the two thousand dollars. i actually liked broadwell quite a bit it just maybe would charge too much for it (laughs) but but they had no competition so did they i don't know yeah so so i mean given that they had pivoted that way and you know looking at the initial numbers and seeing okay well this is you know, this isn't Skylake, KB Lake performance, but this is, you know, Broadwell-esque performance. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, my mind, the, there's, there's two sides to this. There's the journalist in me thinking, well, okay, so how is AMD going to execute on this? They've lost the trust of their motherboard partners. They've lost the trust of their customers. It's going to be a long road ahead. But then thinking, well, they don't need to win. They just need to be ballpark. Which I guess was kind of AMD's messaging as well. I know maybe I drank the Kool Aid a bit too much during that during that event. Well, that's what I thought as well. You know that if they can just get in the ballpark. Yeah. I, I was thinking, oh, if they can give us at least Sandy Bridge IPC and then eight cores, but use way less energy, that'll be really impressive. Of course, they turned out mm. <laughs> actually exceeding Broadwell performance and getting dangerously close to the IPC yeah. of Intel, considering again. Eight cores using the same energy as Intel's four cores. I was, I was absolutely blown away by Zen One's performance. It's just, just don't forget when when they were doing the marketing for Zen One, they already kind of knew Zen Two performance levels. They'd already mm-hmm. done the most of the work. They'd already done yeah. the simulation, so they knew they could frame Zen One within the scope of what Zen Two would be. 
So I think that really helped their marketing messaging and their press messaging on the product when it came out. I mean, it's with any industry, with the car industry, if you have two cars that are roughly the same or one slightly better, as long as the mm-hmm. you know, price to performance ratio is roughly the same, you're going to get interest in both. And that's all AMD had to do. It, it, it's Well, yeah, with their position in the market, for sure. Yeah, <laughs> that's all they had to do because they had no market share but, anymore. But they, they, they had to, they obviously had to build that one die that went into everything, the one Zeppelin die. The fact that they managed to put that into so many things and got so much utility out of it. Somebody came into the AMD team, whether that was Jim, whether that was uh, Mike Clark, whether that was Suzanne Plummer, because um, she was on the CPU team then. Somebody said, we've got to have one chip that's versatile to do everything. That does consumer, that does enterprise, that does embedded, you know, with the whole Ryzen V1600 platform and what have you. And they did. And, you know, they were using global foundries, so cheaper than TSMC, <laughs> probably. Mm-hmm. Um, they obviously did baby steps, like with, with first gen Epic, had to be baby steps because... An ecosystem like that relies on having a strong roadmap, strong deployment, strong feature set, and the promise of execution. I mean, it's I've I've interviewed Forrest Norod a couple of times now, and he said, you know, first gen Epic was about getting the message. The second gen Epic was showing that we can deploy at scale, and third gen Epic is what everybody really wants. And <laughs> and they have a roadmap out to Zen four and Zen five. You know, to mm-hmm. Genoa and um, whatever the other one is, people seem to think it's called Turin, but we'll see. Yeah, I think I've heard that before. I, I'm not actually, as much as I do a bunch of leaks, I'm not paying that much attention to Zen 5. It's like, well, mm. it's going to be a while, guys. So, um, I, and yeah, how I've heard Zen 4 described as like reaching like the final conclusion of all this innovation, like putting it all together for what this can become like that's i think that's like the i've also again you know do with this what you will but like i've heard like that's the like the final one jim keller really put a lot of uh work into planning as well like that's the end conclusion of the zen the first zen arc who knows what they do after that i'm sure there is a zen 5 but well it's uh, uh far said the zen 5 is is well underway uh but don't forget do, do, oh i'm oh do, yeah do, do, jim jim's job People seem to people seem to get a, a I think a wrong idea about what Jim's job has actually been at some of these companies he's been to. I mean, yes, he well, people think he does everything. <laughs> yeah, well, no. So in a certain way, he does. As in, he has mm-hmm. so much experience is, and he's so versatile that if you put him to anything, he will go and do it. But with AMD, his main task was to build the team. Right is to mm-hmm. is to rebuild the team out of the ashes of the bulldozer family get the right people in place, identify the strengths of the people who worked there, and move them about if they needed to be moved about. And then on top of that, you have the high-level planning, the Skybridge concept. And then from what I understand, he actually he did you know high-level Zen designs, look incredibly like mm-hmm. an Intel core. Um, and then he went to work for the ARM. He mostly worked on the ARM variant of Skybridge. He, he he left the rest of Zen, the finer details, up to the rest of the rest of the team. As far as I understand, I mean, I'm still waiting to interview the guy and get and get the gossip. He 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 now works for an AI company called Tense Torrent. Um, so it sounds kind of like what he did at Intel too, from what I've heard as yeah. well. Like his job is to 
high level concepts and then make sure the team is there when he leaves that executes it. He really strikes me as someone who gets bored easily. <laughs> he likes the planning, the building. And then once he knows the house is going to be finished, he just, oh, you don't need me anymore. Yeah. The house is yeah it's he's sort of winding up the, the mechanical mouse and just letting the cat run after it. He does the winding. He lets everybody else run after it. He's not an ideas guy. He's a guy with a spanner. You tell him to go do something with a spanner and he'll go do it. But he's, he, he leaves the ideas up to other people. That's, that's, I mean, that's what he's told me a couple of times. So, and that seems to be what he's doing, whether it's you know, go making you know, self-driving silicon at Tesla, whether it's making high-performance Apple processors, whether it's mm-hmm. you know, doing Zen. At Intel, I, I'm under the impression that his job was more about aligning the internal recipes to be more more friendly to the rest of the ecosystem. I mean, one of the whole things about Intel recently is about its new foundry services, about how it's offering its facilities for other people to make chips. Now, it's done this several times in the past. But one of the issues that Intel's always had is that it's had it because it, it's a company with its own fabs, all of its internal processes, for the most part, are custom. They're very specific to Intel engineers, and they do what Intel engineers need to do because Intel engineers are the ones that are building these tools. And he, you know, and part of his role, and uh, to a certain extent, I think Murthy and and Raja as well, is that they said, well, if you ever want to make this available to anyone else, they can't use it because you're not using the industry standard tools. You're not using the EDA Mm -hmm. tools like Cadence and Synopsys, and you haven't got the workflows that can be exported to other companies. So I think a lot of Jim's work on that front went in that direction as well. I mean. You saw the pictures that Raja was sharing on Twitter about him and Jim visiting Israel and all the different mm-hmm. fabs and stuff. And that's what I like to think that Jim was doing. And I think that's a very, somebody at Intel had to have been doing that. And somebody at Intel wasn't doing it before Jim arrived. No. So <laughs> they were not. So one plus two <laughs> equals, yeah. I think a lot of people forget this too that AMD probably suspected Intel would keep having 10 nanometer problems, but they truly were planning for Zen Plus to compete with an uh, eight-core Ice Lake before it came out, or a Zen 2 to do that. And it just turned out it didn't need to. And I, I in fact, I kind of think they were almost arguably too aggressive with price when it comes to Zen Plus. Like, I don't know that they needed to make it that cheap. I mean, they were directly competing there. Um, but yeah, and and I, I assume did... They they had all this planned ahead of time, so they knew what they had coming. And well, I think you can actually see Lisa Sue putting on more and more leather jackets <laughs> as she <laughs> releases more products. Like she could, it's very clear that AMD could tell right before Zen Two and Zen Three came out. They're like, no, we we've just got a home run here, apparently. Um, but wh- where do you see the future of Zen going? Where do you see Intel going? What do you see the what do you see the current standing and competition between the companies now? And how do you think it's going to evolve into twenty twenty three? So both the companies are looking at two things. One is market share, and two is markets that they can grow into. One of the things that Intel didn't really do for a number of years is expand into additional adjacency markets. This is why they have the whole data-centric philosophy now. You know, They want to get 50% 50% market share in networking. They want to get 50% market share in automotive and IoT because they've been doing they for so long. They've been just going for you know we've got 95% market share in CPUs. There's no room to grow. <laughs> I mean, sure you can mm. go after four percent, but you're going to have to spend stupidly more amounts of money to get the last four percent. 
Um, so Intel is it? In- well, and there's a reader mail about self-driving yeah. too. I think you're kind of going to answer that question, yeah. like why is Intel going into self-driving yeah. and all these yeah. other things? But, but with, with AMD, it's kind of the same thing. Um, I mean, we can we can look at the acquisition of Xilinx. That is very definitely much a how do we plug Epic into more things, right? It's you can talk about. Mm-hmm. What could they do and in designing combination products as in combination silicon? But that I think is thinking three steps too far down the road. First step is, well, what customers do Xilinx have and what are they currently using to support those Xilinx you know, FPGAs? Mm-hmm. They're probably using Intel. Well, why don't we shove an Epic in there and get the sale and get the market share increase? After we do that... You know, I've also heard that Xilinx has one of the best TSMC design teams. And that AMD's design team has been not perfect lately, uh, or, or should I say, not as good as it could be. That's something that Daniel Nenny from SemiWiki suggested has been suggesting heavily for the past few months. That Xilinx has a really good TSMC design team as well. It's, Xilinx have ha- have been having to push the boundaries with respect to TSMC's packaging technologies, things like Coos, um, you know, and the EMIB and Foveros equivalents and um, TSMC has what it's called 3D fabric where it's got all their packaging design technologies. Xilinx have, has had to push the boundary for those to design the products that they want. Um, if you look at, say, something like the, the VU9P FPGA, it's one of the biggest FPGAs they make. That's actually four bits of FPGA silicon um, with, uh, with an interposer. And FPGA have had to design the fabric to work with the interposer in order to you know, minimize latency loss between adjacent cells. So it just looks like one big FPGA, and it acts like one big FPGA. Um, so in that, in that sense, Xilinx has had to drive the packaging story for its own products. Now, how mm-hmm. much AMD can utilize that to begin with, I think is relatively minimal. Because, like I say, I think that's three steps down the line. First step is just, can we, uh, can, can we build solutions together rather than build products together? And then having those teams work together over a certain amount of years, you know, a team that is put together from people who don't know each other won't design good products because they don't know how to play off of each other. Mm-hmm. Give it another one or two years, which is kind of what AMD has said. AMD said, you know, we're going to let Xilinx be its own little group initially under Victor Peng, current Xilinx CEO. And we're just going to look for, you know, co-sales opportunities. Then thinking in the future about, you know, well, can we, do we have synergies in packaging? Do we have synergies in product development? Um, You know, with... The chiplet strategy, can we have FPGA chiplets along with you know, transceiver chiplets and off-chip Surdes chiplets? And those sorts of designs anyway would be for the high-profile customers. Think you know, Frontier and El Capitan and the supercomputers, that sort of thing. Or maybe the hyperscalers and the cloud service providers. They, will, they might want that sort of thing if they're not going to build it themselves. So what AMD is doing with that acquisition, I think, they're going to, one of the reasons I have is when Intel bought Altera, the other FPGA company, they integrated it too quickly. And Altera's effective market share plummeted. Xilinx went mm-hmm. up as a result. Because, they're, because Intel turned around to Altera and said, okay, stop what you're designing. 
We're going to now design your next FPGA on 10 nanometer. Oh. <laughs> Which is the Agilex FPGAs. Uh, two years ago, two years ago, or uh, yeah, Intel said they were going to have Agilex F, I, and M FPGAs. They're currently making M and they're taping out I. I, mm-hmm. In my mind, those three products should have been released in the same year, and it's now three years, and we've got one and a bit. Um, so that's that's why I think AMD has to kind of leave Xilinx alone for a while. But in terms of you know building the market, building the market share, building the revenue stream with its consumer products, if we put aside all the silicon allocation and wafer semiconductor issues to the side. Um, you know, they're pushing hard in CPU and uh, enterprise. Uh, GPU is kind of, you know, there or thereabouts. I think they're focusing, even though the revenue is higher on the consumer CPUs, uh, uh, on the consumer GPUs, uh, enterprise GPUs is probably where the bigger market is in terms of total addressable market financially. Uh, on the CPU side, yeah, everything's going into Epic right now. Lisa Sue said at the beginning of the year that the two major markets this year are commercial. So that's say selling fifty thousand laptops to Dr Pepper. Mm-hmm. Right, that's that's a commercial that's a commercial sale, right? Uh, or enterprise, you know, getting Milan into the hands of customers that were kind of looking at Naples, were impressed with Rome, and now they're ready to execute in Milan. Now the pandemic. But um, I, I spoke to Forrest Nod about this. He said that some customers were already evaluating Milan last year, and the pandemic, you know, meant that they couldn't be on site to evaluate. As in, mm, they were yeah. shipped a demo system, but they couldn't actually physically put their hands on it. So for some customers, it delayed them a quarter, a quarter and a half, two quarters. But he said because was, you know that's all gone now, they're all ready to deploy. Those customers that had those delays, and they're seeing more customers come on board. And that's what's going to be, be making the money for AMD over the, over the next year, over the next two years, I think. I mean, AMD said Q1 revenue this year is, uh, this year is expected to be $3.2 billion. Now, Q1 is usually a low quarter of the year. It's because of seasonality. It's usually a low revenue quarter for most across the tech industry. Well, yeah, but everyone, a lot of people went into a holding pattern last year because it was to quote you know uncertain times i mean and even so there's ten, a lot of spending right now i mean even 10 years ago q1 has always been seasonally low and i know that's what yeah. i'm saying though right but this like and so now it's exploding because they saved up money and actually they probably saved even more money because they worked remotely during the year they're finding well, also also compared to two years ago tsmc is making 50 percent more wafers yeah so there's there's also more silicon to go about they're selling more products it's it's a- A- AMD is pushing up average selling price by selling, you know, the Epics, um, and they're also set what aiming to sell more volume. So if people are wondering why they can't get the fifty nine fifty Xs, it's probably because the chiplets went into Epic seventy seven sixty threes. Well, I mean, it's a few things. They've been shipping millions of them. I think everyone's, you know, stayed inside all year. Save some the people who would spend a lot of money probably saved more money working from home. And so now they're ready to spend. Um, You know, it's actually funny when you talk about capacity, I really do think a lot of people are missing right now how much of it is not just capacity. There's substrate Mm -hmm, shortages now, power component shortages. I'm actually being told that at this point, capacity is not even the issue. 
Um, in fact, I think I was told that TSMC was planning for some downward trajectory early last year because, you know, demand for capacity was down on several of their lines, but now it's up. Now they're turning it on everybody. I really think people are underestimating that, look, I don't want to place any bets mm-hmm. on, on availability for products, but they're, the capacity of TSMC isn't really the issue right it, right now. It, and, and now they've turned more of their lines online. They're up and running now, everybody. So I think uh, Q1 last year, uh, I know this off the top of my head because I literally just did an article on this today. Oh. <laughs> Q1 last year, they, they did 2.2 million 12-inch equivalent wafers um, in, in Q1 for, the, for over three months. Now they're doing 3.3 million because, as you say, Q1 last year, they expected a downturn in demand. Um, with, regard, you know, with regards... Whether it's you know wafers or substrates or power components or everything else, we know. I mean, we've we've asked Lisa um, and and Intel, you know, similar sort of things. You know, what, what's the holdup? And you know, they're all saying, well, we're investing money on it in our whole supply chain, um, which is fair enough because they have to do that. That's just part of the game. But if you look at AMD's financials, um, they have a section there called inventories, and I mm-hmm. asked I asked AMD what they meant by inventories um and they said this is this is product this isn't product that's sitting in a warehouse somewhere it's not like an inventory like that it's not product that can be sold on the shelves it's it's product that's in the chain that we've put the orders in and is in the process of being built but we haven't received it yet so this could be wafers that have been cut up into dyes but dyes that haven't been placed onto substrates yet that's all comes Mm -hmm. into that inventory line now, inventories for AMD went up by 40% last year, which means that they have 40% more, more products or 40%, the value of the products is 40% mm-hmm. higher in the chain than last year. Now, that's going to be partly increased purchase of wafers, but it's also mm-hmm. going to be if there's, a, if there's um, a bottleneck in that production that's stopping them getting built, then they're just going to be piling up somewhere waiting for the substrate, waiting for the power components, waiting for validation, you know, post, post-manufacturing mm-hmm. testing. It, it could all be things like that. And uh, obviously, none of these companies are going to say exactly what directly. No. Um, and, you know, we hope for a time that it becomes less of an issue. And it, it just, these things move so slowly. Well, and I think it also, I'm glad you brought that up too, because this whole conversation is, one thing I'm seeing too much, I just put out a big Intel Z leak, is I'm a little tired of people going, well, if anything's made at TSMC, it doesn't matter anymore. And I'm like, that's that's not true, guys. <laughs> like Intel has its own supply chains for a lot of things as well. To say that something made at TSMC doesn't matter because there's not enough capacity is just flat out wrong. Like it would help if there was more competition. And the, what people think is the bottleneck isn't as much of the bottleneck as they think it is anymore. With regards, you know, the packaging, it's Intel does have to decide whether they're going to be using their own packaging or TSMC's packaging. Um, mm-hmm. And if it's and if we can, if we just bump, if we just lump all the packaging and the substrates and that into what into what the industry calls OSATs, um, I forget what OSAT stands for, but TSMC has a very strong OSAT chain that it can leverage. And if that's where the bottleneck is, that's where the bottleneck is. Um, now, companies can obviously buy mm-hmm. chips and use their own OSATs, and Intel has its own OSAT equivalent 
packaging and testing. Um, just you have to make you have to be wary of where those testing facilities are. I think Intel has one in Dalian in China. That's where it's also doing its Optane R and D. You have to move these chips about, especially if they're chiplet based. You know, if you've got a chiplet coming from the US and a chiplet coming from Taiwan, and it's going to be co-packaged in China, that all adds up into the supply chain that has to be managed. It's the same thing with um, AMD and its IO dice from Global Foundries and its chiplets from TSMC. This is it's kind of why on the AMD side, we we we. We don't see we don't see those chiplet designs going too low in price unless they're just kind of yeah. low low um, hot, low yielding parts essentially uh, they can't get the or leftover from a previous gen to be honest yeah so it's there's going to be a minimum cost when you start working with chiplets mm-hmm. from all different places now if you make all your chiplets in one place which is I guess what we think is going to happen with AMD in the future when it changes the IO die to seven nanometer. If it's making the IO die on TSMC seven and it's making the chiplets on TSMC five, then it can be packaged locally and it's all going to be yeah. nice and happy. And, Which is the plan, yeah. I believe. It's you you can't you can't And cost isn't as much of a factor anymore too. They can pay for it. You know, this deal with Global Foundries yeah. is as much of an issue. Yeah, no, and you know, they still make lots of embedded parts at Global Foundries. All all all, all the if you go to CES to Vegas and you see all the slot machines, well, guess what? They all run AMD APUs inside. <laughs> They're all ten years old. <laughs> I didn't G-series. know that. It's um, if 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 you go to if you get a chance to ever go to AMD's uh, building in Santa Clara, they have a little mm-hmm. kind of uh, showcase area, and it's like here's all the stuff that our processors go into. Yeah, and they've got a fruit machine. <laughs> and and I said, can you open it up? Can I have a look? And and they said uh, we don't normally do that, but because it's you, and I, and I had a peek in. Get someone in here. Yeah, get someone who who knows how to take this apart. But yeah, it's if if Intel wants to play the tile strategy effectively, working with TSMC is going to have added cost in the chain. If they can do it all in house or locally, then it'll be cheaper. I mean, as cheap as what. That was the next thing I was going to bring up. Let's just admit it, nobody wants to pay full price for those Windows 10 professional keys. But shopping for deals on eBay can be a risky process that wastes your time, which is why you should simply just go to cdkoffers.com. cdkoffers.com offers an assortment of Windows software products, Steam games, Origin games, Uplay games, and even games on Xbox and PlayStation. Help out Moore's Law's Dead and save yourself some money by using offer code BROKENSILICON for 25% off all Windows software and die shrink for 3% off everything on the website. Use CDK offers today. I'm glad you mentioned that because it's something I actually thought of the other day, a conversation with a few people that I think, right, TSMC is ahead of Intel. They're going to be ahead of Intel for a mm-hmm. while, maybe forever. But look at Ponte Vecchio. It's not exactly a simple chip. <laughs> and having complete control over some of the nodes for some of the tiles on that chip probably makes it easier when you're putting literally dozens of chips stacked together. And 
I think people need to understand that even if, you know, which it was a reader mail question, by the way, maybe you can speak to that too. Even if 10 nanometer isn't, is, you know, maybe behind or around TSMC seven, even if they're seven nanometer will be behind TSMC's three, but maybe close to their five nanometer. Even if Intel's always a node behind, the nodes aren't getting as much better as they used to, even though now at least they're happening every year. Um, but it would behoove Intel to try to keep up with the TSMC as much as possible, not just completely go to them because they have direct control over their own nodes. And if they really want to disaggregate and put all these tiles together, it's probably, I think, going to be a massive advantage that they can completely control the nodes for some of the dyes there, you know, as they would used to call it gluing together. Like, is that something you've thought about too? Like this competitive advantage, maybe in tiles versus chiplets when they can control the nodes for some of the tiles that don't need to be on the latest node and stack them. Um, in, in terms of some form of holistic advantage, no, in a, in the sense that we're dealing with smaller bits of silicon that can be binned better. Yes. But that's been true since AMD was doing chiplets and other companies have been doing chiplets, you know, for years. So in the sense that that's not a new advantage. I mean, from a product perspective, you've got to separate out the the foundry side from the product side, I guess. Um mm-hmm. so the one what well, the thing is, whenever we speak about foundry processes, we mostly focus on high performance. We focus on, well, how much frequency for how much power can you drive and that's not that's a bit yes it's a big part of what the semiconductor industry is but it's not the whole part of oh, the no, semiconductor most industry. people don't need yeah, that so yeah. i mean if you're if you're dealing with uh analog circuits if you're dealing with radio frequency if you're dealing with high voltage if you're dealing with long lifetime if you're dealing you know with industrial it's these are all very different manufacturing processes as well Intel's been focused so much on the high performance for a long while. If it's going to offer effective foundry services, it's going to have to start doing research into these areas, which TMC, TSMC and Global Foundries and SMIC and others have been doing for quite a while. So it's going to be interesting on that side. Now, whether Intel can actually ever go ahead of TSMC, mm-hmm. um, the one... <sighs> The one advantage Intel has had over the years, and I think I've said this before, is that they've always been the first to adopt new manufacturing um, paradigms. It's We saw it with High K Metal Gate. We saw it with FinFET. What's next down the line? Garfet's gate all around. Um, if we put Samsung out of the equation for a second, because um, they like they like to do their own thing, um, TSMC has said they're not doing uh, Garfets until two nanometer. They said three nanometer is still going to be FinFET. Um, Intel last year, um, Mike Maybury, who was then CTO, and he's, he was he was CTO for a long, long time. Um, he said that what sort of timescale we'll be looking for Intel to implement these gate all around FETs. Now you can talk whether it's nano ribbons or nano wires. I'm just lumping it all in together. Um, because there's research in many different directions. And he says, yes, it's definitely on our roadmap. You will see it in products within five years. Now, if you time that up with Intel's process node naming, mm-hmm. if they hadn't have had the delays on 10 nanometer, they would probably be coming out with, with gate all around FETs next year on their effective five nanometer or what have you. Um, 
so the one th the one area that I can I could see Intel catching up with TSMC is while they might be a node behind in transistor density, they might have the equivalent of a half node or a full node improvement by going to gate all around. Because then they can fully optimize the transistors in their products for voltage, for frequency, for power, for response, for die area. And they get all the good benefits that gate all around FETs give without even looking at to stay stacked gate all around FETs, which is another mm -hmm. area of research entirely. I have uh, several books from TSMC events that I need to read, that I like reading through every now and again. I would love to do articles on it, but I don't think I would do it, do the technology justice. Um, but in terms of where those two need to align, Intel has that chance. But because they've had so many delays, you do kind of wonder whether it's slipping away. Now, there's nothing to say that TSMC might have um, a bug in a system at N3, right? We don't mm -hmm. know that. We didn't know there was going to be a bug in a system for N10. Uh, so, sorry, for Intel's 10 nanometer. Uh, and Everyone acts like they knew it now, like, oh, it was too aggressive. And it's like, well, yeah, but also they didn't know yeah. that would happen, guys. Yeah, and it's, we, uh, you know, so th thank, thank goodness we, we, we live in, in the same time era as Charlie Demersion from Semi Accurate because he did some wonderful analysis on, on um, Intel's, uh, was it Technology Day 2017? Where they did all the graphs that didn't really have any sort of proper scales. <laughs> um, I still love his analysis from that from that time. Um, but yeah, it's anything can happen to any of these, and it's so. Here's the thing: um, Intel's uh, was Andy Grove who said only the paranoid survive. But now we have Pat Gelsinger who seems to be you know putting his foot down to the floor, turning on the NOS, going as you know putting as much happiness mm -hmm. and as much enthusiasm into the next generation of products as possible which kind of seem seems like the opposite ends of each other um which in some ways concerns me because intel's been paranoid for years that's why we had 10 years of quad core cpus arguably um but if intel doesn't put the foot on the pedal on the gas then they're not going to be leading edge anymore so no, not, not at all, you know, and, um, I mean, I guess that's kind of like, like moving forward with that though, not so much that who's going to win whatever nodes, but like, how do you see this kind of future of Zen future of Intel? Because it, it, it in many ways, I think Intel's just putting a spin on what AMD is already trying to do and calling it something else. But I, I think they're both trying to have, you know, these complex, almost McDonald's to order chips eventually where they can make exactly what they want and mix and match. I think AMD focuses a little more on the scaling up. Like, look, if we use chiplets, we can just literally make Epica the equivalent of a 1,000 millimeter squared die. Whereas Intel is focusing much more on mixing and matching different IP. Like for now, AMD is in charge, but like, how do you see that play, expect it to kind of play out in 2023? For example, you know, like yeah. Zen 4 versus Meteor Lake. Well, I mean... Intel's tile, tile, tile versus chiplet is an interesting distinction in its own right. The, the point is, companies like Intel and AMD have to have a unique angle. If they're just doing the same, they're never going to be ahead. So by doing tiles, mm -hmm. and tiles are something that they've been working on for 12 years. I mean, I've, I, I've interviewed members of Intel's packaging um, team, and you know, the, the first research papers for like EMIB go back to 2008. 
and it's only now being productized, that sort of thing. So Intel's got this idea that they have to do, um, I think they have a slide that says client 2.0, where, you know, they want, like, say a chip can have 24 tiles, and you can pick how many of them are cores, how many of them are I.O., how many of them are graphics, how many of them are yeah. you know, AI accelerators, whereas AMD is in the mindset of having to be more frugal. And that's not always a factor. Not, that's not always a, a function of the fact that AMD is, you know, ten percent of the size of Intel. Mm-hmm. It's when they come out with a a Zen two chiplet, Zen three chiplet, and I guess a Zen four chiplet. The Zen four chiplet we see in consumer will be the same Zen four chiplet we'll see in enterprise. Um, you know, they've said that they they do they do custom I/O dies. Uh, so you know, the one in consumer is different to the one in enterprise, but even between Threadripper and Epic, there's some slight differences. Forrest said that the, the even the IO die between um, Rome and Milan, initially it was going to be the same, but they actually changed it for Milan. Uh, they adjusted some of the metal layers, the upper metal layers. They mm-hmm. didn't change the transistor layout. They changed some of the upper metal layers to get you know a more optimal power and efficiency point for that product at the time based on where they wanted to optimize it. And then he's even said that one of the exascale systems based on Milan will have its own custom I/O die for that. Now we don't know what's in mm-hmm. it at this point. It, you know, still don't. I'm watching that one a little closely because there's a there's a lot of rumors about what could go into that stuff. My guess is that that is that they've re- they've replaced the DDR with H- HBM Fies. Mm. So I mean, yes, have a st- and uh, still have you know uh, PCIe out and. Maybe they've enabled some sort of, you know, infinity fabric onto memory or something. That would be really fun and interesting. But it's a it's a custom design for a, a custom partner that while it isn't massive in revenue, it's still a good it's a good engineering exercise for what AMD wants to be in the future. Um Right. And like if the, if Intel can make Pana Vecchio, they can make pretty much anything 3D stacked, which might be why that's one of the first things. And Pana Vecchio, you know, goes to a customer willing to pay. Yeah. exorbitant amounts of money per chip so they can afford to do it. Well, I mean, it's... it's The thing with Ponte Vecchio for me is that those sorts of things, they're great. And individually, if you look at them, you know, without context, they're great. You know, 47 tiles on a package. <laughs> a lot of numbers, yeah. Uh, but then the economist in me and the financial analyst in me thinks, well, what's the efficiency yielding of that? I mean... All the individual tiles... Probably not very good. Well, no, so, so all the individual <laughs> tiles will have their own efficiency. Uh, EMIB tiles, mm-hmm. I suspect they've got really efficient. Everything that's built on 14 nanometer in that product, if or the HBM, for example, will be high yielding. Um, now, we, then we come down to you know the 10 and the 7 nanometer tiles in Pontevecchio or you know wherever they come from. It's are the, are the individual yielding that good? And then what's the packaging together yield. And speaking with Intel's um, packaging teams, part of what they've been doing since 2008 to productize this feature is getting to a point where they can package it together with high yield. And as you said, Lakefield was the example product in that. Mm -hmm. Because if you're putting putting two chips together in a Fovros connection with only a 50% yield, then that's not good enough. So each of those individual chips say 95% yield, you know, some stupidly high number with a very you know, low defect rate. You can then bin out the ones that don't work 
But then if you're packaging them together and your packaging success is only 50%, that's not viable. But then if you have three tiles, then you got 50%, then 50%. If you have 47 tiles, it's 50% yeah. to the 47th power. So even if you had a 99% success rate in putting two tiles together, you still need to multiply that 1% failure 47 times to the power of 47. And, you know, I'm sure some, somebody to do the math. It's probably got to be at least, you know, 20. Oh, I'm sure someone's thinking about that, you know. Yeah. it's. I think, yeah, I think Pana Vecchio is a learning experience. And I think when you look at that and then Lakefield, you know, like when I saw Lakefield, I was kind of like, oh, so Alder Lake must be 3D stacked and everything. Happened. Yeah. And it's like, no, not really. I think. I think moving forward, it really is going to be iterative that you're going to see these wild products, of course, but those are learning experiences and that <laughs> this is hard <laughs> that in five years, we'll look back and say, oh, how, look how cool our chips are. But I think there's going to be a lot, even using previous gen nodes, like in AMD's going to keep launching seven nanometer products in a five nanometer era. I think we're going to keep looking at like, oh, Sapphire Rapids is HBM on it, but why doesn't it stack all this? And it's like, well, they'll get to that with the next one. And like, I think it's going to be these little learning pieces of 3D stacking for both AMD and Intel. Even Zen 4, I've heard, isn't as 3D stacked as people think it's going to be. I mean, so there, there, there is one big problem with stacking, which Intel is working on. And that's when you stack, you typically have the high-powered die on top and the IO die oh, yeah. below. Because The reason they do that is because you need to get the all the thermal energy out of the chip and mm -hmm. it's best to have the chip with nothing on top of it so you can put a heat spreader and, a, and some cooling on top of it. The problem is that high performance chip on top has to have power. And the only way to get the power is to come, is to have TSVs mm -hmm. through your IO die. Now these mm -hmm. TSVs, they've got to carry a lot of current. So they're going to be quite thick. You've got to make sure, you know, they're the right proportions. But having that much energy going through a TSV means that that die also has to have a keepout zone because it will induce interference in any signaling around it. Now, how many power TSVs do you need for that top die? Is If it's a massive top die, you need loads. So actually, your, the active area of your bottom die is a lot smaller than the size of the die itself. You might only be using 20 to 50% of that IO die for actual logic. The rest is taken mm -hmm. up by TSV. Oh, yeah. Now, you could say that helps with you know, dark silicon, but with NIO dye, that's not necessarily much of a concern. What Intel is doing is uh, the next-gen packaging technology is, is ODI, omnidirectional interface. And what this allows, this, this allows them to make the top die, the compute die, bigger than the IO die. So you've kind of got, you know, it's, it's like an upside-down hat. Yes. But yeah. what they do is they then put the power TSVs straight from the top mm -hmm. die into the substrate so it doesn't ever touch the I.O. die. Now, the thing is, making a TSV mm. that long is difficult, but you get around the fact of having power disruption in your I.O. die caused by having TSVs providing power. Now, we're not even talking about TSVs providing data. <laughs> right? That's a, whole mm -hmm. other, that's a whole other situation. But then... Now you have this sort of, it's, it's what I call a cantilevered situation, where you've got your top die bigger than your small die, bigger than your lower die. You now have power all the way around the outside. What do you, what do, you do if you need power in the middle? Maybe you now have to break your IO die up into little chiplets. 
mm-hmm. order to get that to happen to make sure you have all the ODI TSVs coming through. I mean, and then you, like I said before, then you have the respective yielding of packaging that all together to consider if you're putting multiple mm-hmm. dies together. And if there are different nodes too, I mean, these things are going to have different coefficients of thermal expansion yeah. if they heat yeah. up. There's a lot of problems with 3D stacking. But the thing is, how much of that analysis do you do at what stage of when you design the product and how mm. much will you know before you get there? This is why we've been talking about this sort of 3D stacking technology for a while, two, three years. Um, you know, and research has been going on for a decade. TSMC has you know, a long road of 3D fabric technologies ahead that they've disclosed. I suspect Intel, now that they have foundry services, will have to start talking about that a bit more publicly. But it might be another 10 years before we actually get this 3D stacking figured out in such a way that Lakefield was such an issue with a one square centimeter die to get right that when you skate up to Ponte Vecchio, you know, it's the customers absorbing a lot of that R&D to build those chips. So when we get traveling again, and when Raj Kaduri gives me the call and says, come to Italy, come see Ponte Vecchio on Ponte Vecchio, I'll be there with gelato in hand, <laughs> ready, to, ready to see what all the fuss is about. Now, the question is, will we ever see benchmarks of Ponte Vecchio that aren't Linpack? Oh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and we talk about how amazing this product is, but I wonder how, how, how much access anybody will actually get of it, except for the customer. Oh, I don't think very much. You know, again, I think this truly is a learning experience product that they don't intend to. I mean, each one of them probably, uh, any number wouldn't really surprise me in how expensive each one of those probably is. 50 grand. That's what, yeah, that's kind of what I'm guessing. I'm like, I was thinking it's more than 10. I mean, it's, it's, <laughs> 50 grand. Well, I mean, so the, the, the Cascade Lake AP processors, where they put two big XCC dies on the same package, I estimated mm-hmm. those at around 25 grand a piece. That was, that was two bits of silicon. This is 47. <laughs> exactly. So 50 grand's probably a low ball. Yeah, but, then, but then you say, if you say 100 grand, you think is that, that would be too much, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> I, I think. Whatever it ends up being for their customer, they will eat the cost because this is just basically considered live R&D. Is, um, is, isn't the customer the U.S. government? Does it mean you're paying for it? Yeah. In, <laughs> um, in well, money isn't real anymore, oh, remember. Oh. So it doesn't really matter. Let's print more. Um, <laughs> I, I would tell Roger I'll buy one with Dogecoin. You know, he, he sounds like the type of person who would actually <laughs> accept that offer, to be honest. All right, so let's. I've got a few reader mails here that I want to go through kind of at the end. I think there's a lot more we could talk about, but I think we've kind of clearly honed in on AMD versus Intel's future as the arc, and that's probably what I expected us to talk about the most, anyways. Um, Larissa Metz writes in and asks In the coming era of CXL and Gen Z interconnects, redefining data center infrastructure architecture, do you think on-package heterogeneous computing will be more or less important? A common vision for this next era is having compute disaggregated and pooled over servers and racks with lots of memory in one rack, accelerators in another, NVMe OF everywhere else, and CPUs on their own. In this scenario, where does this kind of on-package heterogeneity 
advanced by AMD and increasingly Intel fit in. Used, I feel like, Larissa, you were trying to put as many big words as possible into a paragraph there at a certain <laughs> point, but all the words are correct. Yeah. And yeah, I did, I, I'm going to have a server guy on soon who talks about how you know, renting from Azure from yep. Microsoft is just racks of different stuff. So that's a good question. Yeah. So, I mean, it's what, what he's talking about there is is what we call disaggregated servers, right? It's you have, mm-hmm. you have your computer in one location, memory in another, storage in another. And the idea is that the network latency is so low that it kind of doesn't really matter where the stuff is. You can just pull out what you need. So, I mean, and, and, and mm-hmm. this is kind of the philosophy behind um, cloud service providers about yep. what uh, how much ram do you need it's in that rack yeah. how many much processing power it's in that one you've paid for this every month to boil down to the question it's you know if if you have this much disaggregation do you really need combination of features in the same package in the same piece of silicon and i would argue that it depends which is not, which is not a cop out answer honest um it depends on the customer Right, so hyperscalers and cloud service providers and big enterprise, they do not, they do not need you know, a combination feature package if we go fully disaggregated, because they'll have it somewhere in the data center and it'll be super low latency. The important thing to think about though is how much of the market is still just run of the mill, pick up and play, you know, single socket, dual socket, self servers, a small, medium business for medium sized business. Maybe it's you know, on site testing. If you think about um, edge deployments, they're not going to be disaggregated systems. They're going to be all in one systems that have to do everything all within you know, a small rack or even within the one U, two U. So, what you would arguably see in that, in that instance is just a bifurcation of offering. And we've we've we've, yeah. we've kind of seen it. Um, we're, we're seeing it with AMD, with cDNA and RDNA. They're bifurcating the compute and the graphics. Um, Intel's you know bifurcating the, the its graphics between you know high performance computing to gaming to just high performance and low performance. Um, when I spoke to Forrest Norrod about, uh, I, I think he said at some point, you know, there's going to be disag- there might be disaggregated Epic. I need to double check what he actually said in the interview mm. there, but yeah, he it's when I said you know could we see a future with HBM on CPU package? I didn't ask that exact question. It was worded more more. It was disguised. That question was disguised better, such that he would answer it. Um, but yeah, he said there's going to be a bifurcation in that space between who needs that super high memory mm-hmm. bandwidth, and for a lot of people who say want to build a storage server. They don't need the memory bandwidth, they just need the PCIe lane. So maybe they will have a customized solution with lots of PCIe, mm-hmm. um, which again talks to you know our chiplet and tile discussion about how Intel can you know implement this sort of pick and choose type of product philosophy. So one thing to put in the hand of disaggregated systems is um, Intel is working on this really amazing technology called uh, silicon photonics. Uh, which is essentially moving data in optical fibers. Their latest research in what, 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 they're, what they're subdividing into integrated photonics is imagine your QPI link between two CPUs in the same server being an optical link. It doesn't need an external laser. All the requirements to build the optic link are built in chip, in package, using EMIB and FOVROS 
they've designed lots of new technology and got lots of new patents on how to do this in silicon laser and modulation so they can send hundreds of gigabits you know terabits of data through a single you know, optical link between cpus but the point about this is if you think about two cpus in a server you're thinking too small imagine mm-hmm. 8000 cpus in a data center all connected together like one system and your latency mm-hmm. is literally speed of light and that's where disaggregated systems take off because then your latency is if you know assuming they get the software stack right and how to put data straight yeah. into memory it's uh, what they call you know rocky and things like that um then yes dis- disaggregated systems will be amazing now, how far away is that technology well it's currently being developed inside intel in in their equivalent of their moonshot division inside google x or alphabet x sorry somebody from google emailed me and said no it's not google x it's alphabet x um so intel that was part of intel's intel lab they call it intel labs it's not intel's labs intel labs um they did an event in uh beginning of december where they said you know we need to open up more and talk about what we're doing so people know what we're doing um and i interviewed the head of the labs uh dr rich ulig um is interview on an tech written and a video interview on my channel and he goes into all these you know he goes into integrated photonics they're doing neuromorphic computing quantum computing federated learning all sorts of interesting stuff but back to the question yeah i'm of the mind that there's going to be bifurcation of of these markets and how well the companies bifurcate, say Intel versus AMD, will depend on mm-hmm. how their financials are going at any given time. If they don't have the money to build multiple products, then they can't, and they'll focus on the markets that matter most. Yeah. Same with you know AMD post bulldozer; they focused on the CPU market and the GPU market. The GPU designs have arguably suffered. <laughs> the GPU market was just Vega and Polaris for three years. Yeah. yeah so. I mean, and that will come back and it, it will just be a function of money and design and who the customers are and how much money they're willing to put in. Um, but yeah, that's my answer to that question. And, you know, that kind of gets me to, uh, and I apologize to the people that submitted questions. I think we got like, you know, 30 questions. There's no way we're going to get through all of them. But let's just throw in NVIDIA then here at the end too. I mean, it sounds like you're saying, hey, they can all do it. I mean, let's be honest here. AMD at one point, you know, they bought Radeon. And as much as that was kind of a shot across the bow and an integrated company that can make anything, didn't go so well for quite a while. But now AMD's processors, I would just say, are the best. And their graphics cards are right up there next to NVIDIA. They're doing both well. Intel is working on graphics cards. We'll see how that goes. We'll see how their CPUs go. But I think there could be a future where, you know, by DG3 or 4, they're they're competing in the high end with both CPUs and GPUs again. And now we have NVIDIA certainly always in high-end GPUs. And now they are pushing forward with like grace for certain types of high-performance CPUs. Let's pretend NVIDIA goes for enthusiast desktop CPUs eventually too, which I've heard actually. I know you're shaking your head and I don't think it's happening anytime soon because I know how it would. But I've heard that deep down, people would speak to Jensen, like he brings it up that someday he does want to compete with Intel if he could. Let's pretend this happens, though, where NVIDIA is trying to make, in 2025, NVIDIA is making CPUs and GPUs, AMD is, Intel is. Which company do you think is better positioned to compete on all fronts? I mean, at everything and combining designs together right now. Like, What would you expect would be the 
most positioned for that heavy competition in the future? Now, are we talking... It's a big question, I know. (laughs) Are we talking consumer market? Are we talking enterprise market? Oh, are we talking laptop market? Let's talk consumer first, okay. and then and then let's do a little bit of both. You don't want to go too far because we could. This could be a its own podcast for three yeah. hours. But I mean, like, what, what, you know, they all are integrated to a certain extent, yeah. though. Like, who, who do you think's, you know, to, does who will succeed best overall? So, in 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 the consumer space, I would say AMD. On, on, but with a caveat. And the reason why I say AMD is because AMD's done CPU and GPU for so long, they have mm-hmm. the supply chain, they have the distribution network, they have all the people in place to make that happen, and they've been doing it for you know, over a decade more easily. Um, and, and I mean, they're in all you know, high-end consoles yeah. and laptops and graphics, yeah. It's, and and uh, they've already you know, sort of teetered with you know doing some co-design between cpu and gpu and making sure you know there's an a plus a advantage i think is the marketing term um so in in that respect amd starts with the better base however intel and nvidia obviously have um the financial advantage of being able to drop a few billion when they need to so, I mean, my prediction for Intel with their GPUs to begin with is that they might start with, at least on the consumer side, with the loss leader. Something that I suspect the same. Yeah. Just, you know, okay. So, so, so say it, it costs them $500 to make and they'll sell them for $400, whatever. Uh, that, that's what I expect. Because yeah. for, for, <laughs> for them, getting market share and people designing for their GPUs is more important than actually making money. And for the first gen, I mean, they're the underdog. No one expects it to succeed. It has to make an impact yeah, it, on the I mean, first and gen. It doesn't even. It doesn't have to win. It has. It. It could be ballpark. No. I mean, I, I, I could argue it could even. It would even be Polaris, and it would be okay because <laughs> it'd be out there as long as it's priced correctly and people can buy it, and it and the drivers are good, and it has some feature people want. Well, yeah. I'm not too worried on the driver front. I mean, it's me neither. I've, uh, I've interviewed uh, one of the first interviews I did on the on the my YouTube channel was with Lisa Pierce, who's Intel's VP of graphics software. So she's in charge of the driver teams, and you know I've met her loads of times over the years, and she's she's a really smart cookie. She knows what she's doing. She knows what it's like to deploy graphics drivers for a billion laptops. Discreet cards are obviously different yeah people keep forgetting they've been making drivers for a while for graphics cards granted this is scaled far higher yeah. and new i know but and you know it's part of what they've been doing over the last couple of years i mean it, if we put the odyssey stuff which has kind of disappeared <laughs> out, out of mind for a second what they've been doing is that they've been taking stock of what nvidia and amd do and they've been decide they're saying well how can we change our process to be more aligned with what consumers want? Which means, you know, day zero drivers for the latest games, um, choosing either to do patches immediately or make or roll patches into monthly updates, which one works better for which markets, working with OEMs to make sure distribution of drivers uh, works well, making sure that they're easy to distribute as well. Um, 
it's I, I dread the time when we actually have to download five gigabytes for graphics drivers. It'll happen. Oh, it's coming clearly. Um, <laughs> but you know, it's it's it it's things like that that Intel have been doing recently to align themselves with a wider, more active and more vocal market. Because integrated graphics isn't a vocal market. If you're selling, you know, a million GPUs into commercial systems, you still have to support them with drivers, but you don't have to be on the leading edge. Leading edge of drivers. Mm-hmm. You know, if you take the same analogy of process notes, you have to be on the leading edge of drivers. And they're working towards that. And they've got they've got a good team over there. And there will be you know, there will be snags and there will be hitches and there will be bumps in the road, but there always is, especially with a new architecture, large volume coming out. They, you know, they will have a checklist of the things they need to do and they will be doing as much as possible. And Intel's got the money to put behind that team to at least point it in the right direction. Execution is a different matter, but I think execution will go well. Yeah, I think they have that now, of course. When it comes to NVIDIA... I mean, yeah, I was gonna, so wait, just to resummarize, it sounds like you think at least AMD is a pretty safe bet because of their experience, whether they can dominate every market, they're just smaller. Yeah. And then Intel, Intel is getting the experience. They have the leadership now. And at the very least, they'll keep up with AMD mostly because they can spend where they need yep. to and they're back on track. Yep. And so now what do you think about NVIDIA? Uh, um, if NVIDIA was serious about competing with Intel, they would have bought Nuvia, um, but they didn't. Qualcomm did. It's it's. Mm-hmm. I heard both Intel and Nvidia were thinking about buying new. Yeah, it's. But they they didn't. So. Yeah, it's. Uh, well, I mean, it's. I can I can speak about. Uh, I think I have on a couple of videos about uh, what you know the new view acquisition. But um, I, what Jensen is doing, or what Nvidia is doing, whether it's Jensen you know, focused or not. It's Jensen doesn't seem to like to talk about his officers that often, which I think is a bit weird. Um he they are focus on focusing on markets where they've been strong and been growing rapidly for over a decade. So this is the march on HPC since I started programming GPUs has, you know, it's tens of billions of revenue for NVIDIA. There are people who can't get enough mm-hmm. of those NVIDIA cards and they've been optimizing and optimizing and optimizing them for compute. And, you know, we have things like the V100 and the A100, you know, on customized form factors for those customers that want to get 400 watts out of each one. And then the trickle down comes to us, right? Um, yeah. So when it comes to the CPU focus, they're relying on that market being the next source of growth. Right, because they mm-hmm. already it, it's they they kind of didn't see AI coming, and then it came, and then it happened, and they were in the right spot. So they're saying, well, if we keep our product line here really good, then if there is another wave, on the chance that our silicon is the best for it, then we'll be in even better position and get another tens of billions. Um, but on the other hand, they're also angling out markets. Right, automotive has been a big market for a while, and um, I struggle to think why somebody wants a thousand watts of compute in the back of their car to do self-driving. I agree. I, I People keep bringing up self-driving. I'm like, I just don't think that's what NVIDIA is going to dominate. I think it's going to be all their own custom chips. Yeah. I mean, it's we don't know what custom silicon NVIDIA is doing for people that isn't talked about. 
Well, and people and people don't. Well, yeah, so that's true. But also people forget like, I, yeah, I don't think they're just going to put like A100s in cars. I mean, people, when they talk about self-driving in cars, they forget how little of the cost is the computer. <laughs> it's like nothing. So they can certainly afford to build their own chip if they think it will help them. Well, yeah, it's, well, I mean, it's NVIDIA trying to provide a solution for people who don't want to do that or don't have the expertise because yeah. building your own chip means you have to go out and you have to find a silicon design team you have to support them for three to five years. You then have to get the contracts with TSMC, with Global Foundries, with with Samsung in order to build the thing. Then you've got to test it. Then you've got to deploy it at scale. And you've got to have a software stack. And NVIDIA is saying, nah, don't do that. Buy this. <laughs> buy, buy our solution. But then so is Mobileye, right? And all mm-hmm. the other different autonomous uh, silicon companies that are trying to do the same sort of thing. Um, I mean... Don't go, don't go wrong. I think if I if, if there was a level five self-driving car automated, would I pay a 20, 30, 50% premium over the base price? Probably would. If I can get in a car and just sit there and read a paper and go visit family and whatever, rather than actually having to. Well, that's what I would say is these car companies that don't want to bother with it, I would say, well, welcome to the future. Yeah. You need to. <laughs> well, it's like you also need wheels on your car. You know. Yeah, yeah so... Going back to the original question, whether NVIDIA yeah. whether Nvidia would be best poised to do, say, CPU and GPU for the consumer market, NVIDIA has had CPU failures, right? Den- Denver cores, I think, were the big one. And, um, and Jensen, when he gets annoyed, likes to throw his toys out the pram. He's done it on stage mm. a couple of times over the years. And he's done it, you know, not when the cameras are filming a couple of times as well. Uh, it's... Remember when Nvidia bought the Acera, mo- I can't, I don't know how you pronounce it, Acera, Acera modem business, and he's like, oh yeah, this is going to be revenue generation for Nvidia. We're going to license it out. He tried to license it, but because he had no research and development in the next generations of modem, nobody, nobody paid for the IP. <laughs> so when it comes to building a CPU, I mean, just say CPU, regardless of ignore the fact that it won't be x86 unless they decide to acquire Via. Uh, <laughs> Which no, I don't want to give Jensen ideas. I Let's not get don't. into that. I mean, they're, 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 <laughs> I was going to say uh, if, hmm, he might think about doing that. Actually, <laughs> if it, if if we equate ARM and x86 equal in the in 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 the consumer yeah, market, yeah, I, I think we should just assume I, that. I don't think Nvidia has the distribution channels and marketing right now to be able to set a good message. Even if they built a competitive product, they would have to build that team. Now they have money to build that team, you know, and buy AMD's team. Um, they probably could buy them out with with lots of lots of shares and lots of promise of stock. But where it stands right now, it, I when when it comes to Intel and GPUs, I know Intel is putting the people in place. I know that there's a mm-hmm. growth strategy there, and I know there's a roadmap. NVIDIA hasn't had the inkling to do that roadmap, and I, I don't know how they would go about doing it. And, it, and well, it, 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 if it know, failed, I don't know how Jensen would take that kindly. You know, I, I think one big criticism I've always had of NVIDIA for the past five years is it just seems like they keep doubling down on things they're already good at, and I worry they leave themselves exposed. It sounds like you think they're, I don't know if doomed's the word, but 
Like they are, it's inevitable that they're going to keep doubling down on what they do well at and maybe expanding that, right? You know, okay, so we were good at machine learning. Now we expand that into this over here. But that this idea of like combining everything, that they're they're kind of doomed to still need to probably rely on working with everyone else's stuff while AMD and Intel can pretty much just build everything themselves for themselves. You know, it 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 wouldn't surprise me if NVIDIA exited consumer space. Their big revenues are in enterprise. I've heard people say that. I don't think they will, though, right? I think they'll always have a gaming graphics lineup for a similar reason that I've heard Microsoft keeps Xbox around. It's like, well, that's the consumer product in people's homes, and it puts our name yeah, in front of it. it's everybody. more of a marketing tool than it is a re- revenue. I mean, yeah. don't get me wrong. It ge- still generates billions of revenue for them. But if, if they had to pick a market, it wouldn't be the consumer market. And that's why all the silicon is going into the enterprise stuff right now, right? So. I think that's why you could see AMD take the performance crown back too, because NVIDIA has mindshare and they know that it's not as important as winning in these other realms. At least they don't think it is. If NVIDIA, or I should say when NVIDIA, bifurcate their GPU into pure graphics and pure compute, right? Mm-hmm. How much R&D, what percentage of R&D do you think they're going to put into the compute versus the graphics? <laughs> yeah. Right? It's 80-20 in my mind, that sort mm-hmm. of level. So as in enough to tick over, but not a focus. And you know, people criticize Intel for not having a focused product portfolio. NVIDIA has a focused product portfolio right now. If they bifurcate in that way, will they still have that focus? I mean, to your point about mm. keeping, keeping consumer graphics around, I'm sure Jensen loves being up on stage. So that might be the only reason he keeps it around. <laughs> I mean, it's the funnest one, right? So you got to keep doing it. Yeah. We'll finish it up with one final reader mail here. So AC666 writes in and says, Hello, Dr. Wafer Muncher and Homeless Tom. As a university engineering student looking to go into EE and semiconductors, electrical engineering, what advice can you give on what I can do to further Mike's expertise and experience in this field? This is outside of applying to internships and catching up on the terms worth of content I have over the mm-hmm. next month right before exams, by the way. Cheers, guys, and keep up the great work. It, it kind of depends what you want to go into. I mean, EE is a broad enough field that you know you see EE people going into hardware, you see EE people going into software. Um the best thing to do is, especially if you want to go to, you know, say the big tech companies, or even if you want to end up in the small tech companies, is from, from my perspective, they, they, they like to look at where you've succeeded and where you've failed in projects, either professionally or personally. So my advice would be is, you know, continue to read what's the latest and greatest, keep up to date, you know, it's, it's, it's like current affairs and news, but for tech, but also build, build a personal portfolio of, mm-hmm. of things that you've designed, thing of collaborations that you've had, um, you know, don't just sit about on, on Reddit answering questions, trying to act like you're, you're the know-it-all, which is what some people do, actually knuckle down and, and do things, att- attend maker events um mm-hmm. get get behind that maker mindset you you're going to have to show these companies that you're a doer that you can execute you know if if you say well okay i have a project to build say a new led lamp or you know that's voice activated through alexa or what have you you know 
put something together, you can show them that you had, you know, you you developed a time frame for that project that you you know, you spec'd out, you did some research on the parts that you're going to use, that you put them together, um, almost like a like a like a case study. And I'm I'm using you know mm-hmm. an LED voice activated lamp as a as a base, but it it depends what you're interested in. It could be you know say you know a, a custom gimbal for a camera or whatever. Or you know, just or just looking behind what what goes into behind into how those things work, both you know mechanically, electrically. In the same way that software, you have full stack developers. Hardware engineers have to essentially be full stack as well. They have to think at the base level, and they have to think at the consumer level, and then you know beyond that, working in teams, working in groups, showing that you can work oh, yeah. with people or. If you have the opportunity to say lead a group, make sure you can you know manage it well. And if you don't know how to do these things, we are living in an age where we have more information at our fingertips than ever before. If only there was some like connected web of info you could look things up on. Yeah, yeah, and it's don't just look at the cats. <laughs> there's there's you know there's 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 plenty of resources out there. Um, I mean MIT has their open courseworkware platform. Um, lots of lecturers now put their you know uh, put their lectures online. Um, mm-hmm. It's uh, Owner Mutlu is is a good one that I keep telling myself I'm going to watch, but I never get around to it. Um, yeah, you because know, that's about uh, hardware microarchitecture and stuff. It's there's a lot of information out there, and you got you got to think what's right for you, and what you want to do in the future, and whether you want to have fun. Because you know, if you do want to be the CEO of a big company, you have to stop putting in the effort now and work towards it. If you want to be, you know, a happy engineer that's working on fun projects, get all your failures out now. Is is you know? <laughs> also, university offers a lot that people don't use that people don't use, or pe- people don't realize it's there to use. I think you mm-hmm. know, it's a bit different in the UK than it is the US because in 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 the UK we don't really have TAs. We all of my lectures were given by lecturers, the senior lecturers mm. uh, in the in their field. So, but I, you know, they had they have office hours. Use them, go up to them, ask them. Yeah, if you, oh yeah, like that's the best advice I've ever given for I could give is if you don't understand it, go talk to the professor. They want you to succeed. Oh. There's not a single professor, even one who I thought was bad at lecturing, yeah. who when I went to their office explained it to yeah. me. You know, it's even even if even if they're being uh, you know they're talking down to you about it you know or just reading out of a textbook in a monotone yeah it's but <laughs> it, it it's not only if you don't understand stuff it's life advice career advice future advice or you know yeah. opportunities you know do you, you know i'm interested in in doing x is that something that you that you do that you've done can you point me to somebody who does this sort of thing that i can be interested in it can help me you know improve my focus on this area because lots of university lecturers work in industry have contacts mm-hmm. in industry oh yeah and 99% of the time as long as you know you're a student that they think has has worth in the industry they will help realize some of those goals for you because that's what they're there for yeah, and I, I mean, I would just add on to the things you said of like, pay attention to what you're enjoying too. I know it's kind of obvious advice, but like, 
you know, if you find, whether it's mechanical engineering, electrical, computer science, that these types of things are what you both excel at and like, and usually it's both, usually because you like it, you're more passionate about it. Keep taking more of those classes. You don't, you know, and then if you find you don't like it anymore, maybe, you know, I know it's kind of sounds like it's not advice, but it is. Keep, try all of these things. And if you really do like one, the sooner you focus that and then go out and actually apply it, the sooner you're going to get really good at something that someone needs that will make you stand apart. It's really probably the most advice you can get, right? It's the one thing I regret doing during my university degree is not spending some time out in industry. Um, either a mm. summer or the way the UK works in chemistry is that some courses offer the third year as a year in industry alongside you know, additional study. I never did that. I stayed pure chemistry just so I could do the most advanced modules at the end of my course. Because if you take a year out, you can't do the most advanced modules because you're yeah. dedicating time elsewhere. The, the thing is, everybody that came back from the year out became very disillusioned about the education process. They, 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 they very much had the attitude of, well, I know how it works in industry. Therefore, I want to go out and make money. I don't necessarily care about my qualification at this point. It's just, you know, I... I, I let's get on yeah, with it. Let's come, whereas, you know, I kind of, I didn't have that revelation. So I stayed on for a PhD. <laughs> um, you know, and it's... it's you know, it's funny. That's else. what my brother's doing. He's in grad school right now. I mean, yeah, I would, I, I'd say that's also good advice as well, because no matter what the internship was, I knew I wanted one because in the U S you know, it's during summers usually. Yeah. Um, I, you know, the first one, I believe I was a lifeguard just trying to make money <laughs> for college. But then the second, uh, summer it was like, you know, no matter where it is, I need an internship. And it was in this I called poltrusion plant where they like extrude fiberglass on stuff <laughs> in the middle of nowhere in Pennsylvania. But I had it. I had an internship my, you know, my second summer. So I had that experience working with, even if it was people in the middle of nowhere, you know, um, like I had that experience and that led to another internship and another one every summer all over the place, whether there I had one at an insurance company actually as an engineer, which is weird, but you know, getting all of that experience. I mean, yeah, I, I think you learn quite a lot by actually going out and doing it. But you know, my brother is in grad school. He's following the path you did, Ian. So the, I mean, I mean, the, the other thing is, most of my career, my professional career, it's all been about people I know. It's it's mm. it's never really been about what I can do, which sounds weird. Um, so the reason how I got into Oxford University is because I ended up doing a course where the lead professor or the lead uh, lecturer came from Oxford and he, his old supervisor essentially had a research spot available and he trained me for a year to go into that spot. So I didn't really have to apply for grad school, which is kind of insane, mm -hmm. especially for, for Oxford. Um, and then the reason why I work at Anantech is because I met the person who ha who had my job at Anantech, and he and you know we talked on forums, but it's because of who I know, and because I went to work for Anand, it's I, so I knew Anand, so I followed Anand around to all the meetings and interviews with you know CEO of this company CEO of that company and through that they learned who I was and now I'm the main contact for them so 
part of my role at Anantech now is to make sure that when I do these sort of special things, I try and bring along a junior editor, one of our freelancers, because it gives yeah. them the experience. Because, you know, it's kind of a pass it on mentality. But if you don't go out and make connections, those doors will never be opened for you. And, it, and you know, it may sound sad that, well, surely yeah. you, it should be based on merit. If you do well, you should. Yeah, because there's some people who would hear that and go, oh, it should be about merit, not who you know. But I mean, I guess that's one way to look at it. Another way is these are also people that went out and met someone because yeah. they actually went out and did it. And also it's, it's different to nepotism, right? Nepotism is just because it's family. This is meeting people and then these people take you on or guide you towards yes, them and because I, yeah. they have faith in you and your abilities. If they didn't, then they wouldn't because they wouldn't tarnish the relationship with that person that they're introducing you to if they didn't think you were good enough to meet up, right? So talk to lots of people, meet lots of people, get out there as much as you, know, you can with doing an engineering degree. And you know what? I think that's actually pretty good advice to close on. I really want to thank you for coming on, you know, and, and to the people that's questions we didn't answer. Just a reminder, again, I think we actually covered the bulk of the questions, even if we didn't specifically read it. But, you know, we'll get to as many of those or I will in future episodes with other guests as I can. And uh, yeah, I mean, why don't you plug your stuff, man? I mean, where can people find you? Uh, you can find me at anandtech.com. Look for the look for the Ian Cutris author by. Uh, that's where you'll find my written work, uh, my video work, which, uh, like I've mentioned, runs the gamut from uh, the absolutely insane bonkers. Why don't we mine on an Ice Lake Xeon server? To the how do we distinguish between tiles and chiplets on AMD and Intel? I do all sorts of videos there. It's kind of my outlet for for the more amusing and the more sort of casual sort of analysis, but also going into some deep technical topics. Uh, that is youtube.com slash tech tech potato. Uh, and it's really fun time. And I actually spend, if you, if you want me on social media, most of my time is spent on Twitter. Uh, and uh, <laughs> I've seen you. I will definitely argue a point that I believe in. Um, but there's, you know, lots of good discussions to have. Um, I also have you know, a bunch of Patreon members, and if you if you if you watch some of my videos, read some content, um, I can be found there. Currently reinve reinvesting as much money that comes through every source back into the channel. Recently, uh, bought a new DSLR camera to you know do the fancy 4Ks because we need we need all the Ks. But oh, of course. And you need to justify people buying that 4K gaming monitor. Like, ah, <laughs> oh, why are your videos not in 4K? I bought this monitor. I see those comments all the time. But, you know, I, I started with a 720p web, webcam. Um, right, but, but, me but, too. But the, 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 the content <laughs> is still um, some form of gold. Fool's gold, maybe, but I think it's gold. Uh, but I'm always open, you know, to suggestions, to avenues. It's, there's lots of potentially stupid content out there, and I want to cover it. Thank you for inviting me. Oh, yeah. And I'll put links to your stuff in the description. Unfortunately, I actually had a hard cut off 45 minutes ago, but it was going well. So always for the fans, right? For the always fans. for the fans. All right. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, thanks for coming on and everyone. Thanks for listening. The following podcast was brought to you by the YouTube channel and website Moore's Law is Dead. Moore's Law is Dead and Broken Silicon are trademarks of their creator, Tom. That guy is me, and I am indeed the creator, editor, writer, and showrunner of Moore's Law's Dead podcast, videos, articles, and other media. 
However, Moore's Law is dead as a team, with Broken Silicon co-hosted by my brother, Dan, audio editing by Gerard Cortez, and select technical editing by Carbon Cry. You can find all of our information, including how to get a hold of us, at www.moreslawsdead.com. And if you are a fan and would like to send mail or other hardware, please mail parcels to Moore's Laws Dead, P.O. Box 10468, Peoria, Illinois, 61612. And speaking of fans, without exaggeration, the patrons are responsible for the continued distribution of the content you just listened to. And so if you have some extra money, but only if you do, please consider supporting us. For just $2 a month, you get access to the exclusive podcast Die Shrink, voting on subjects of future podcast episodes, the ability to have your questions read aloud on Broken Silicon Die Shrink and Loose Ends, and of course, the Moore's Law is Dead Discord full of like-minded people who would love to meet you. I am one of them. And at higher tiers, you get access to ad-free episodes of Broken Silicon, the back catalog of Flyover States podcast, thanks in the credits of videos and podcasts and other perks as well. And if you cannot afford to support us, please just share Moore's Laws Dead videos and podcasts with friends and family on social media and Reddit. And give Broken Silicon and Flyover States a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. All of this really does help so much more than I think anyone realizes. If you'd like to advertise on the podcast or a person of interest who would like to be a guest, please reach out to the email address mlhbdead at gmail.com. But as I said, this podcast would not be possible without its fans supporting it. And so now it is time to give a personal thanks to the greatest of the fans. The following supporters are at the 10 gigahertz or higher producer levels. Brad Bedlin, Telos, GUK, Benny Berlin, Justin Yant, Thomas Rupp, I love you, Lynn and Jim, Ivan K, Tom Bailey, Muhammad Al-Kawari, Frederick Lau, James Crasser, Justin Parrish, Zachary Martin, Terrence Herod, Drita Full, Phil S, Courtney Elliott, The Ninth Dude, Greg Renegar, Josh Law, JBG, Travis Gooding, The Mechanical Philosopher, Lebo Kinkilo, Fatboy Deezeru, Daniel Hyde, Dammit Logistics, Tara Reed, Jack O'Neill, Matt Salem, Aaron Close, Juan Garcia, Juan Volm, Sean Vollmer, My Name Is Nobody, Joel Correy, Alethros, Telos, Hey There's a Kitty, Greg T. Wanchuk, Ivan 214, John Jameson, Benjamin Cannon, Matthew Lane, L, Jan Rauner, Rubber Ducks, Michael McGee, Allie Robertson, Eric Jackson, Jonathan, Patrick Groh, Evan Dingle, Dominique Cox, Stefan, Original Rosshard, Forum.com, Sam McArthur, Total Silo, Sol Connor, Michael Costa, Andrew S., Blake, Aaron Keith, Kerry Baldino, Endless Loggins, Tom San Filippo, Justice Brennan, Viking R., Trevor Power, Stu, Olenia, Nanyan, Daniel Nishwell, Franco Frederick, Dan Galanowski, Alex Carastiel, Dark Rain 2049, Lane Perry, Joseph Kerman, Carlos Valdez, Carnivore Bear, Denovan Russell, Zebra Z Burrs, Licky, Martin Porchegi, David Cowden, Ricky Tan, R- Spencer King, Patrick J.S., Justin Staples, Freddie Canoas Jr., Stephen Coates, Kiwi Phil, DeHuhu, Sarah Light, Anthony Gareffa, Matthew Griffin, Alex, Joseph Loria, Luis Correa, Deke, Cheesy Ramen, Raul Abeneni, Tim Robbins, Jake Dude 23, Brian Riggleman, Samuel, Ryan Daniscu, Dave McCoy, Valco Malev, Gabe Lagner, Rodney, Morton Svensson, Michael Deaton, Thomas Summers, Maurice Courtois, Matthew J. Link, Scott Ruff Schneider, My Sharona, Y. Truey, Roman, Jacobs Tan. Kowitz, Hair Rats, Wakir Khan, Eshil Dar Epstein, Stephen Hart, Christopher A. Butler, Greg, Peter Moore, Chris Licata, Justin Thomas, Sam Miller, Sammy Malas, Kevin Chen, Shakir, Nick Rakin, Holden Mobley, Matthew Lazier, Arpit Sharma, Mead and Pork, Jimmy NG, Mads, Beachhorn, Benjamin Oshley, Zijits, Shield TV Couteau, Dane P, John Wilinsk, Sam Venzel, Mark Mitchell, Brucha, Jeremy So, James Anderson, and of course, thank you to Sahara for the music. Music.